Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide five times. It's quite a lot of explosions. Yes. Well, why are they colliding so many times this week? It's in honor of our 125th episode. Hey, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. To, I was going to do 125, but... Um, that would be most of the podcast. <laughs> so just five. That would, people would turn off the podcast after 125, <laughs> I feel. All right. So each explosion was 25 episodes. Exactly. All right. Well, I, feel, I feel terrible. I didn't get you anything. I didn't get me anything either. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. And uh, everybody calls me Whitney Seibold. And uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we have nothing special planned. You know why? Because every episode of Critically Acclaimed is special to us. You know why? Because we review movies, and we love reviewing movies. And uh, we missed last week. We did, just because yeah. of various scheduling snafus and Lots of timing. To, yeah, just bad timing. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're going to be reviewing a ton of new movies uh, that are mostly on streaming, obviously. Uh, we've got uh, the half of it, Blood Quantum, Bull, Driveways, Clementine, and Porno. And uh, we're going to be doing... That, that our, is a film called porno. We're not just reviewing porno. The, the general concept of porno will give the once-over. Uh, and, of course, on the critically acclaimed streaming club, we're going to be reviewing uh, the British murder mystery classic Green for Danger. Available now on the Criterion channel. Woo! But before we get going on all the fun new stuff, we do have to take a moment uh, because a lot of really cool people passed away in the time that spanned since our last episode. Uh, people mm. who, I mean, there are people all over the world who are sadly just, you know, dying, but especially now people are dying from COVID as well. And um, But um, we lost quite a few people uh, who had a big stamp on the entertainment industry and the film industry in particular. Yeah. Um, and uh, we wanted to give a moment, at least, uh, to discuss each of them. Uh, I believe the first person, uh, in chronological order, yeah. uh, was uh, Irfan Khan. Uh, one of one of the biggest stars in the whole world, uh, yeah. Irfan Khan. Uh, and not of COVID, he died of leukemia. Um, yeah, he'd, he'd been diagnosed like a year or two ago, yeah, or at least that's when we announced he's, it. He was only in his early 50s. Too uh, damn young. Uh, and now, Ir- Irfan Khan... Uh, one of the biggest Bollywood stars there is. Yep. Uh, he's starred in a lot of Hindi films, uh, but he's probably well known in America for films like Life of Pi. Uh, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. And Slumdog Millionaire, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was in Salam Bombay. Uh, he, he was just international performer. He could act in many, many languages. Um wasn't he in a Spider-Man film as yeah, well? Yeah, he was an Amazing yeah. Spider-Man, dude. That's right. He was an amazing It was a thankless Spider-Man. role. I think he died off camera or something. Like, yeah. it was real. But he did it. It's not a good... He, he, um... oh, of course, he did it. He was a good well, actor. My point like... is, he had a, a very good work ethic. And I think not a lot of actors have this. I think, uh, especially American actors, they have sort of an ego defense. They want to make mm. sure each film they choose kind of reflects well on their personality. <laughs> Whereas a lot of international actors will do the job. Yeah. They'll take the work, they'll do the job, they'll get into the character, they'll perform, and that's that. Mm. And I think Irfan Khan, given how prolific he was, was certainly that. But he was also 
very dignified. He never yeah. played like a, a fool or a, well, I mean, like sometimes he, he would play like a pathetic character, but he always lent a lot of uh, grace and humanity to his I, roles. Irfan Khan's one of those interesting actors who I'm not terribly familiar with uh, his work in his home country. Mm. I mostly know his work uh, from his American films or films that were made by or released in the Western world. And um, <laughs> I feel like there are a couple of movies that knew what to do with him and a whole bunch that didn't <laughs> like he's having fun in Jurassic world, but he's basically <laughs> just there to make a nothing role mm. seem important because Irfan Khan yeah, is playing yeah. this guy who just runs Jurassic world has a couple of lines about how I'm running Jurassic world. And then I think he like, gets eaten by a pterodactyl while flying a helicopter. Yeah, like I think his helicopter crashes, something like that. Yeah, it's not a it's not a great role for Irfan Khan, but he did his job and he gave that role a little bit more gravitas than it otherwise would have had. There's a lot of a lot of actors who uh, like international actors who will show up in American films for that express purpose. Sure. Remember in Star Trek Beyond, it's like, "Oh, look, there's Shorey Agdashlu." To give you a, like just a little 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 bit of kind of meaningless exposition, yeah. but you know it's important because it's coming from Shorayak Dashlu. Yeah, exactly. That's what that. It, it, it's a shame because Shorayak Dashlu deserves better roles than that. Absolutely. But I'm glad she's well, working, yeah. and I'm glad that at the very least well, she has that status as someone of such dignity that you put her in something for a scene. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that scene is good, which makes me wonder why don't you put her in more scenes. Well, I'm, I'm, her career is fine. She's not I know, suffering, I but know. Uh, just by, by but, uh, point we'd, stands, and we'd say, yeah. you know, why doesn't why isn't Irfan Khan in more? He was in a lot, just not in America. Yeah. So even uh, in America, he was in a ton of stuff. Yeah. He was in a movie last year that I reviewed uh, on the podcast that got completely overlooked, mm. and it's lovely. It's called Puzzle. Oh, you, I remember you. I, I think it's his puzzle. last English yeah. language film that mm. he completed. Um, I, I could be wrong. Maybe there's one in the can. I don't know about. Uh, but it's this really sweet movie starring Kelly McDonald uh, from Train Spotting as um, you know a, a stay-at-home mom uh, who discovers that she has a really breathtaking talent for assembling jigsaw puzzles. And this very slowly and very gradually starts giving her the confidence she needs to turn her life around. And Irfan Khan plays a jigsaw puzzle champion who's looking for a partner. Mm. And they come from completely different worlds and they're just lovely together. It's just a character piece, but it's really quite good. And he's really wonderful in it. He's very vulnerable and sweet. Mm. Um, Irfan Khan played the older version of the protagonist in Life of Pi. And he's kind of literally only in the movie to give you the message of the movie, Mm. to spell it out for you. But the message of Life of Pi is so interesting and so, like, not really where you thought expected the movie to go mm-hmm. that it actually does feel like a good role for your fine con. But anyway, but yeah, he he showed up in all kinds of trash. Uh, he remember Inferno? No, you don't remember. No one Inferno. Remembers Inferno. Nobody remembers Inferno. Tom Hanks doesn't remember Inferno. Um, Tom Hanks apparently like idolized Irfan Khan. Like he thought he was the coolest yeah, but, actor in the world. Well, I mean, he's he's again he's coming on set to do this trashy yeah. nothing Hollywood film. A, a probably because he's getting paid really well, and yeah. B uh, B because. Uh, he's probably having a lot of fun. Sure. And, and yeah, he, he, Danny Boyle said this of him. He was able to really find a moral center of whoever he plays, which yeah. is the job of any good actor, really. I think so. Um, 
It gets overlooked the idea yeah, that yeah, your that the, your character's morality is your responsibility, yeah, we, we, and it is. I, I think a lot of it, it's it's been said that American films are about story and uh, international cinema is more about character, and uh, to an extent that's true. You can we can yeah. argue that there, point there are day, exceptions but, uh, to that till the cows come oh, home, yeah, yeah. but in a general Gen- sense, you'll notice that speaking. being a trend, and. Uh, as such, I think in America we tend to lose sight of actors and sort of focus on the flash rather than the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just look at any blockbuster. You know, mm-hmm. these are like these well, unsu- the, all, all the characters the kind of, of equally movie. cool. They're look not really at, rich characters. Look at so. the types of look at list, just last year. Mm-hmm. Look at who won the Academy Awards for Best Actor and Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Renee Zellweger is a very fine actor. Joaquin Phoenix is a very fine actor. They won for the showiest roles that were nominated. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying they're bad performances, but they were very showy. Mm. Uh, Americans, a lot of Western audiences, see lots of acting, Mm. and they assume it's good acting. Sometimes they're right. (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis does a lot of acting. Oh, golly, yes. But it usually fits the character, so usually it's a genuinely great performance. So... Irfan Khan was much more muted than that. Mm. You know, like he didn't... In the films that we saw in the in the States, he didn't have to really sell it. He just was it. And yeah, that's a really yeah. underrated ta- uh, talent. Um, T- taken too soon. 53 yes. was far far too early in age. Uh, there are other people that we lost. Uh, we lost uh, uh, an underappreciated, I feel, horror filmmaker named John Lafia. Uh, if that name doesn't ring a bell to you, I don't blame you. He had a couple of hit films and then was stuck doing like TV movies about like earthquakes and shit. Mm. Uh, but he co-wrote Child's Play and he directed Child's Play 2, which I would argue is the best Child's Play movie. It is the Child's Play movie that I think gets at the heart of the premise of Child's Play. In the first Child's Play, you may remember it's a movie about a killer doll. But if you watch the movie, it's all about the perspective of the parents who can't believe that this kid would do it. Mm. Child's Play is not a story about parents. Child's Play is a story about a kid whose doll says he's his friend and then goes out and kills, kills people while the kid gets in trouble. That is a child's nightmare. And Child's Play 2 is a child's nightmare of a movie until the ending where it goes all Terminator 2 on us yeah. and is fucking awesome. <laughs> it's it, it's uh, it's really high octane. Yeah, but it builds though. Like it's not it doesn't yeah. start there. It earns that giant ending. Child's Play 2 I feel is the er example of the Child's Play franchise. Like Bride of Chucky is really really fun. I it, it's arguably a better film. But you couldn't have Bride of Chucky if something like Child's Play 2 didn't take this mm. premise seriously first. Yeah, I, and I think it's an underrated horror film. I also saw a, a sort of scuzzy noir comedy film-ish thing that he did back in the late 80s called The Blue Iguana. With, oh, I've never uh, seen that one, with yeah. Dylan McDermott and Flea is in it as a thug. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, it's very much of its time. It's super duper late 80s in that, you know, a lot of people are wearing kind of bright blue suits and, mm. uh, you know, talking all hip hipstery. But, uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely very stylish. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not something somebody would sleepwalk through. Yeah. He, uh, he directed a couple of those, like, full motion video games uh, in the 90s uh, with names like Bomb Meister. <laughs> And Corpse Killer. Oh, gosh, I remember some of those. But the movie I want people to check out, because I feel like 
Child's Play 2, people will watch that just because they're watching through the whole Child's Play franchise. Mm. Not a lot of people know to seek out the incredibly weird, wonderful, chaotically toned man's best friend. This thing was laughed out of theaters when it, it really out. was. But I do feel like I'm sure there, there were production difficulties you wouldn't believe because alternating scenes of this movie play like of like a, like the movie Beethoven, this like family friendly whatever. Then it gets like horrifically, shockingly violent, and then it just gets really fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Ali Sheedy plays a news reporter who is trying to get her big break. And her big break is uncovering uh, uh, evil and clandestine animal experiments at this lab in California. And when she breaks into the lab to get video of everything, she finds uh, a dog. Mm. And the dog escapes with her when the guy, when the mad scientist who runs everything, played by Lance Henriksen, uh it's a big, bursts it's, in on them. It's a St. Bernard, isn't it? Uh, no, it's not or a St. Bernard. It's like a Rottweiler? I it's like a Rottweiler. It's a big black dog. Um, oh, okay. And um, uh, so she takes the dog home with her. And for a while, it seems like it's the perfect dog. Like, it saves her from, like, mm-hmm. a mugger in the in the parking lot. And, like, you know, it, it loves her to pieces. But then it starts doing really weird shit, like... Mm. The boyfriend doesn't like the dog, so the Uh-oh. dog cuts the boyfriend's brakes. <clears throat> At one point, it eats a cat, but it's whole, a, like, it like like swallows it whole. It's like an anaconda. It turns out they like spliced it with anaconda DNA. What it's possible a, purpose that could serve? We have no idea. The breed of the the breed of the dog is a Tibetan mastiff. By okay, the way. <laughs> just yeah. just to clear that up. Uh, it's a very well trained dog, but there's so much stupid shit in this. There's a scene in this movie where a dog kills a guy. By peeing on him, and the dog's pee is acid. What? That's an important feature they decided to include. What a classic. No, 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 no. It's a turkey, but it is a very entertaining turkey. Okay. And I highly recommend you check out this very weird what the fuck of a movie called Man's Best Friend. I enjoy it to pieces. It's not good, mm. but it is highly entertaining. And I think <laughs> they deserve credit for taking this weird, mm. kind of awful premise and making something very entertaining <laughs> out of it. Anyway, John LaFia, I feel, is an underappreciated filmmaker who made some really fun movies. Mm. And I didn't want his passing to go undiscussed. Uh, we also lost uh, someone who, this is maybe not so much a movie thing, but it really affects us because we just recently. Uh, reviewed a TV series that was based on his life. Uh, Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy uh, passed away. Yeah, and uh, tangentially they are related to film because yeah. they did have a few films. Uh, sure. They did one, uh, a film called The Magic Box, which was directed by Brett Leonard, who did Virtuosity in The Lawnmower Man. He also did a Siegfried and Roy movie. Uh, yeah, Siegfried and Roy were very famous, uh, incredibly famous, in fact, uh, Las Vegas magicians. Yeah. Uh, well known for their use of exotic animals in their acts. And. They were, uh, even though they were really successful and uh, you know really highly admired by uh, mm-hmm. their by their you know, magic yeah. savvy and their big sort of operatic shows, and people came from far and wide to see them. Mm-hmm. They were also largely mocked yeah. for being a little bit too demonstrative. They were yeah. like kind they of wore, they were seen as kind they, of silly. They wore uh, sequins. They did all of these uh, ridiculous shows with highly trained big cats, lions, and tigers, and the like. Um, and that's 
True, they they did all that. Mm. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. The, the joke wasn't on them. The joke was on us for thinking they were taking that very, very seriously. And actually, they were really interesting people. And they actually had an animated television series based on their life and the life of their lions who were anthropomorphized for the cartoon and played by the likes of John Goodman and Carl Reiner. Uh, in a show called Father of the Pride, which is surprisingly funny. Uh, it's, uh, the 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 uh, early two thousand CGI doesn't hold up that great. No, like, it's all, actually kind of hard to watch sometimes. All, all the the characters have those weird sort of dead eyes and stiff, jerky movements, but. It's, yeah, weirdly well-written, yeah. and uh, especially when Siegfried and Reuter are on camera. Yeah, they're uh, funny characters they, in the they show. Don't, they don't play themselves. They actually had kind of retired from the biz at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, It was they, shortly after, sadly, Roy had been mauled by one of their tigers yeah, on stage. Uh, um, which probably hurt the show, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they were depicted as these... They were kind of buffoons, but they had big plans, and they were always very plucky and very positive. Yeah, and they loved their animals, and they were nice guys, but, yeah, they were idiots, and they everywhere they went, they were these fabulous shows. There's one episode of Father of the Pride where Siegfried and Roy, their whole subplot is they go to 7-Eleven. And they don't know what 7-Eleven is, because they've yeah. never really been to a convenience store before. And, like, they want a Slurpee, the Slurpee machine is broken, and when they're done fixing the Slurpee machine, it's become oh. a laser show. Yeah, like, shoots sparks and, like, opens up and, yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, what, what, did they, what did they say to the clerk? It's like, oh, do, do you want to be here? No, I'd rather be home. Then go! I will take over! What is this number machine? Like, they're always very eager to help. There uh, is nothing we cannot do! So many bizarre jokes. It's yeah. like, uh, it's, uh, let's There was let's one where they had Martin Scorsese make a biopic about them. Yeah. And they <laughs> fell out and had to recast Roy. It's funny. There's a, I remember one bit where they left, like, a video message for the lions. <laughs> And it starts with, hello, uh, if you're seeing this, it is like, it is the year 4000, and after the apocalypse, we're, our footage is the only thing to have survived. No, no, that's the wrong letter. This one's for the lions. Oh, hello, lions. We are Siegfried and Roy. Here's a gift for you. It's like, so weird. But Siegfried and Roy ex- executive produced that, yeah, so they, they it clearly was, had a really good sense of humor They about knew what themselves. they were doing. They were funny. Mm. Um, so kudos to them. And then... Uh, uh, and then just recently, we lost one of the great legends in music, and indeed, I think all performing, uh, Little Richard. Uh, Little Richard passed away. Look, we can't we can't underplay how important Little Richard. Little is. Richard uh, kind of. He, he, it's been argued that like Chuck Berry invented rock and roll. Mm. I think it is almost fair to say that Little Richard personified rock and roll. Yeah. Like he wasn't just playing music with a certain backbeat to it. He was out there. He was deeply sexual. He was Mm -hmm. incredibly theatrical. He was there to entertain you. Tutti Frutti is one of the great damn songs. But, like, it's also there to rock you. Like, you will be rocked. You will actually, like, you will not. You can't just sit there and politely listen to Little Richard. No. You can't do it. There's so, you know. Listen to anybody who was around in the fifties talk about it. You know how, how kind of revolutionary rock and roll was, and you go back and you listen to like the Shondells' Lollipop, and you're like, this is like a kids' song. Yeah, uh, there was a lot like, of innocent. You're, you're, you're trying to rock f- back then, and even you know? even something a little bit more sophisticated, like the Beach Boys, is you know seen as. Uh, Comparatively naive to what yeah. things turned into. Little old lady little, from Pasadena isn't really a hard hitting song. Little Richard like leads with his crotch 
to this day. <laughs> sure. Like, like you, you put on Tutti Frutti and he just starts with that scream, a wop baba loobop, and you're you're there. Mm-hmm. John That's Waters. When he screams, Lucille, it's like, oh God, what are you doing to me? John Waters wrote an article about mm-hmm. interviewing Little Richard for Playboy. And how and the, the, the interview couldn't run. So yeah. he ended up writing he, an essay about like, his experience. Little Richard said, I, I said too much in this interview. I want full veto power of everything in this interview. And Don Waters like, I don't can't really do that. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, then you can't have this interview. And they're like, we just did the interview. Maybe you should have led with this. And so it was a whole thing. But John Waters had this great conversation about how, like, Little Richard scared his grandmother to death because he'd shoplifted a Little Richard album. <laughs> yeah, and they yeah. put it on, like, without anyone knowing and, like, in their grandmother's house. And they were all terrified because there are these sounds of, like, an extreme extremely flamboyantly gay person of color in their house. It was like the scariest thing they'd ever heard because they were just a bunch of old conservative yeah. racists. It's just... And God and and it. he never turned off. No. Little Richard was wonderful. He he uh, appeared in numerous films and a lot of TV specials. Uh, it, one of my... The first times I ever saw him on TV was uh, for the Pee Wee Herman holiday special. Oh, yeah. He was in the Christmas special. You get to see him ice skating with the magic screen. I think the first time I remember seeing Little Richard was in um, Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme in 1990. <laughs> and yeah, he, Which, if you've never seen that special, that special is amazing. It's so stylish and weird. It stars Shelley Duvall. Um, and uh, uh, a whole like it's got Cindy Lauper, Debbie Harry, Bobby Brown, oh Woody Harrelson, Simon and Garfunkel, Terry Gar, and it's all about how Little Bo Peep, played by Shelley Duvall, because obviously has lost her sheep, and everyone's gonna have to rock the fucking joint to find them again, and it's great. So of course you get Little Richard. Of course you get Little Richard. I'm trying to remember, did he just play Little Richard? I'm trying to remember now. Probably. Uh, he, he, was... he played Old King Cole. Oh, <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. Um, oh, Katie Segal was for in that. I forgot. About that. I forgot <laughs> she was all, in all that. these all these celebrities in yeah. one spot. Yeah, he he had uh, ZZ Top played the three men in a tub. <laughs> the bunch of the big candlestick maker. Pia Zadora was Little Miss Muffet. I could go on about this special. This thing? Mother, right. you've never saw Mother Goose Rock and Run. No, oh, we need no to do this on not on Disney is. Plus uh, if we can track this down. But yeah, he uh, again to, to you know echo a sentiment I just laid out. He yeah. did have a wonderful sense of humor. He had a wonderful sense of self uh, in terms of how he was perceived by audiences. He kind of did movies and TV whenever he just sort of felt like it. Yeah, he'll pop up anywhere. He popped up on Baywatch as a yeah. bartender. I didn't even think he sang. Uh, <laughs> he wasn't yeah. a regular character. Nothing. Just all of a sudden, the bartender is Little Richard this uh, week. When he passed, Spike Lee, who directed a series of Nike commercials in the early 90s mm. uh, posted an old ad with Little Richard where Little Richard was a genie oh my and, God. and turned Spike Lee into Michael Jordan. <gasps> I think I remember that. Yeah. It's like, oh, remember, I, remember, I, I, I don't know what I don't know what to wish for. How, how about a million dollars? Remember yeah. the Spike Lee commercial where it was like interviewing Rob Liefeld and he made a superhero named Spike Man who would like oh, no. look like Spike Lee and wore a video camera for a helmet that would record crimes? No, I don't remember it's, that. Track that commercial down. I remember, that's that's I the commercial. That's the nineties in a little bubble right there. <laughs> when li- Rob Liefeld could have a TV commercial about him. God, uh, Little Richard was in the Rudy Kobe special. Mm-hmm. He was interviewed very briefly. They probably just brought a camera to his house and sure left five did. minutes later. Uh, let's uh, see what else he did. He was in. Um, 
He was in the animated Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. <laughs> Probably, I don't know what character. He was in Down and Out in yeah. Beverly Hills. Yeah, yeah he was in he's... The Pickle. <laughs> he, had a, he played himself in Last Action Hero. Anyway, he was great. He was really Just great. One uh, of the most entertaining performers ever. He was in Catalina Caper from Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's right. That was uh, one of his very first film appearances. Yeah. Uh, when And they, uh, of course, when they're riffing on the film, they're like, oh no, Little Richard, what drugs did they give him to yeah. convince him to be in this awful movie? Little Richard, like, the one true talent in this film. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He actually respected Little Richard. <laughs> just for one minute, let's um, just enjoy that Little Richard's in this film. Good golly, good golly, he lived hard. Yeah, uh, he, yeah he has spoken very openly about a lot of his... Uh, well, here's the thing. He spoke openly, and then he didn't, and then he did again. Yeah, he about backtracked his, a lot about his, his personal drugs life. and his, his sexual proclivities. He came out as gay multiple times, because he would, like, sort of go back in and mm-hmm. deny his sexuality. And he, 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 had he, wrote, really a, he contentious... wrote an autobiography where he would talk about having three ways with Buddy Holly and yeah. a stripper, and then he would say, no. <laughs> uh yeah, so he he came and went in terms of sexuality. He just once described himself as omnisexual. Then he would occasionally come out and at like anti-gay rallies, which was really frustrating. Uh, so he was. This might have been something he was really struggling with his whole life. I mean, he came from a uh, very different time, and it was yeah, probably well, I mean, really a, difficult for him. But. He, I admire, however, that he was as big and as flamboyant and as gay as he was in the 1950s. Little Richard was gay to me before I knew what gay was. Yeah. yeah. I just knew Little Richard was gay. (laughs) He's really gay. I didn't quite understand the details of it, but Little Richard is gay, and that means being gay is awesome. (laughs) Like That's that's all I knew when I saw Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. He seems like the coolest person here, except for maybe Shelley Duvall. But, but that's a different kind of cool. I did get to see a wonderful clip he, uh, when he was on the Arsenio Hall show. He's like, "Oh, I'm, 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 I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. But I'm not conceited. I'm not conceited. I'm convinced." <laughs> <laughs> that's a good line. Yeah, uh, Little Richard, uh, what a giant! What a wonderful talent! We will totally, totally miss him. And and how? Mm-hmm. Just a damn shame. So, um, we we're gonna move on to some movie reviews here. But again, just. What a time, and what a bunch of wonderful people we're losing, and it's a it's a damn damn shame. Uh, let's let's, uh, let's make a segue. Let's make a segue, and let's talk about a movie that you and I both saw. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of movies we both saw this episode. There's also a few we splitting up, but uh, let's talk about a movie that you were a really really big fan of mm-hmm. called The Half of It. Uh, yeah, the half of it. I, I find it a, a, a bit curious that in three weeks we've had three lesbian coming-of-age dramas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the half of it is sort of the John Hughesiest of them. It hits uh, a lot of rom-com conventions, but I appreciate that it hits them from a different angle. Yeah. And there's a lot of romantic comedies where you'll see the exact same gags over and over again. you see the same setups and premises over and over again. And we keep revisiting them because they work. But sometimes we're only revisiting them because they work, not because they actually reveal anything about the characters. Mm. The half of it is a contemporary take on Cyrano de Bergerac. It doesn't call a lot of attention to it, but the basic format is there. Uh, There's an incredibly wonderful uh, woman, in this case uh, a teenage girl at a high school in um, Squamish. Uh, One of the best-named cities in the world. It's it's a little teeny-teeny... It's in... 
Iowa? I think it's in Iowa. It, it's in the Midwest. It's, and, a, um, yeah, it's, it's a little teeny tiny town. Yeah. She's anyway. uh, the only Asian American in the town. No, no, I'm talking about the the girl that they're fawning over. But yes, oh, okay. well, I, was, I was expecting... Cyrano de Bergerac, I'm sure you're familiar with it. There's a, there's a wonderful woman. Uh, there's a hunky guy who's in love with her, but he's inarticulate. And he goes to Cyrano de Bergerac, who is a genius, but an outsider, because he has an incredibly large nose, and people make fun of him. Uh, and... Cyrano but he, but is he's also, a great wit. But he's a great wit, and he's also in love with her. But he doesn't think she'd ever love him for who he is, mm. so he gives all of his fairest words to the kind-hearted idiot. And she falls in love with him, and isn't that a tragedy? It's been told many, many times before. Steve Martin did a really wonderful remake in the 80s called Roxanne. There's a good version that's just a straight-up adaptation with uh, Gerard Depardieu from, like, 1990-ish. This is the queer version. Yeah. Uh, The the, uh, Cyrano character, uh, who's played by Leah Lewis is a high school senior. She's the smartest girl in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's most, writing everyone's term papers. She's writing, and the, te- <laughs> the teacher knows it. And, and she's and, grateful. And she, yeah, she's like, you are so smart. I'd, I'd rather read your like variations and your sort of changing of style like eight times in the same class than what these dunderheads would have to say. Look, we're just going to graduate them anyway. Yeah, Who gives a shit? <laughs> they're they're going to graduate. It doesn't matter. But you're, you're going to go on to better things. The teacher is actually very encouraging, even yeah. though she's like kind of... It's kind of not it, a great it, teacher, you're yeah, encouraging, cheating, encouraging all this cheating, uh, but she's also yeah she's the only intellect in the town, at least mm-hmm. as far as she's concerned, uh, in that she's interested in old movies and old books and mm-hmm. philosophy and poetry and yeah. uh, and she's really really very bitter about living in this small town. She's approached by a dunderheaded jock who uh, who is in love with a, a beautiful like star. Uh, like popular girl in school, uh, yeah. So the the jock is uh, played by Daniel Deemer, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the girl that they they both actually have a crush on mm-hmm. is uh, named Aster, and she's played by Alexis Lemire. So they're both in love with this girl, and and by the way, every single time we see uh, Aster in this movie, she's great. She's she's smart. She's mm. funny. She cares. She thinks outside the box. She's an artist. Everything she's- about her just screams. Too cool for this town. She's too too cool for the town. She teeters dangerously close to like I- ideal dream woman territory. True, mm, sure. but uh, she's given just enough humanity that it, the film is kind of saves her at they, the end. They have to uh, demonstrate that this person is so intensely lovable that everyone would fall in love with her. Yeah. And indeed, everyone has. On top yeah, of these these two people, she has a boyfriend. So yeah, the the jock go, comes to the Leah Lewis character and says, "I need you to write a love letter because I'm in love with this girl." And I'm bad with words. She, and, I'm ba- and and she of course is very very good with words. So she starts following this girl around and you know is is immediately falling in love yeah. with Alexis Lemire, and it's so bloody sweet. Yeah, about uh, just sort of how intensely. Uh, understanding she becomes of of this this woman and the the courtship between the two, which is held uh, via text messages or from yeah. afar. There's a really cute moment where they're sort of contributing to the same mural, but at different times, so they can kind of bond. Uh, the way these two are essentially falling in love with one another, even though uh, Alexis Lemire is. Uh, falling in love under subterfuge seems really organic and true and sweet. I love how I have an issue in a lot of particularly romantic comedies mm. uh, when the entire story is based on this kind of deception. Mm. Um, I understand that 
I understand that when you're first dating someone, maybe you don't tell them everything about yourselves mm. and that there's a certain element of, you know, putting your best foot forward, that kind of thing. But there's a big difference between that and writing someone else's love letters mm. and letting them date that person under false emotion. Like he loves her, but he doesn't love her yeah. the way that uh, Leah Lewis loves her. So that's a betrayal. It, it, yeah. it just is. And I, one of the things I like about this movie, and it's so smart, well, it's written and directed by Alice Wu. She doesn't let anyone off the hook for that. But what she does is she weaves that element of deception into the a, a very potent theme here about uh, you know closeted homosexuality, people who feel that because they're in a religious community or a small town that they cannot reveal the truth about themselves and about how you know what they're doing isn't the right way to go about things, but it's because they're young and they're inexperienced and they don't understand themselves well enough to know what the truth is mm. to begin with. Leah Lewis... You know, she's not out, and one gets the impression over the course of the film that she's still coming to a greater understanding of her own sexuality. So I'm way more forgiving mm. of the Cyrano story in this particular context yeah. than I well, am in probably any other version. Uh, the the problem I have with these sort of with the romantic comedies that are based on deception is that there's never the moment where somebody just says, "Well, you were lying to me, but clearly we had such a strong connection that well, we can try to make it work anyway." Yeah, like they don't just sort of come at it a little bit more pragmatically. Okay, you had this big scheme. Uh, let's do it without the scheme because clearly we were sharing something. You know, I, like our, our chemistry was so strong because that's always the plot of these movies. It's like mm -hmm. we're, we're getting together under the pretense of a lie, but they always have such warmth and chemistry. Mm -hmm. It's not based just on the lie. Uh -huh. It's based on an actual human connection. There's actually, I, they're actually falling in love with each I other. I think there are examples of that working. There's a, there's, I, I think the last like line in the movie kind of mm. torpedoes it, but at the end of the movie, the proposal... And I hope you'll forgive me for ruining the ending of like a ten-year-old rom-com with a pretty predictable ending. Surprise! And also, and also surprise! Not everyone dies. It also uh, isn't very good. <laughs> so it's not very good. But I really kind of like the ending where it's just like, listen, this we had to pretend to be in love and married and everything, and he's just like, all of that was a bullshit lie. Hmm. But I'm willing to marry you if it gives me an opportunity to date you. Hmm. And that's actually kind of sweet. And I was actually kind of with that here. They're young, and I think Alice Wu is very intelligent uh, in that she knows that they're teenagers. And that yeah. teenage love is often uh, fleeting mm. or transformative or uh, mutable in some way. And it doesn't end with everyone getting married because they're kids and they're still figuring right. their shit out. It ends well, also, with the promise that they'll figure their shit out later. Yeah, and I'm and not going to tell you how or who ends up with who or anything like that. But it just ends on this hopeful note that doesn't feel false. And that's really hard to do in a rom-com. Yeah. Well, and also um, it captures a, a, a really important facet of the queer experience. Alice Wu is, is herself gay. She's made two films about gay Chinese-Americans. And... Uh, it's about this this notion of approaching the person you're in love with and trying to suss out their sexuality. Mm. And what I appreciate is that the is she or isn't she straight uh, facet of this story doesn't really have a huge bearing on the plot or the attitudes of the characters. Yeah. Uh, the love is just the love yeah. and they're connecting on a much more intimate level. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to tell you what happens in the movie, no. but it is eventually addressed. 
you know, the the actual sexuality of the main character or, yeah. the, or the 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 beloved character. Yeah, because that's an issue as well and, when uh, you realize that like, okay, they're both in love with the same woman. If she's not gay or mm. bi, it's not really as much of a love triangle as you think, but mm. they haven't been able to even broach the subject. So but it I, gets I complicated. Think, I think there's a conversation at the end where uh, two characters have a conversation about sort of the nature of of sexuality and where they found themselves. And I think it, it plays incredibly fair. Yeah. It plays it incredibly... Uh, I don't want to say intense, intense on a sort of a graduation day sort of way where yeah. it's like everything's really kind of riding high in that and this moment. This might be and, you know, your last chance to gonna, talk yeah, to each kind of, other. Yeah, sort of like yeah. we're, we're drifting apart maybe and and everything will eventually kind of settle down. And I just love the way that conversation was handled and yeah. the way uh, it just sort of pushes out on, onto a train and goes off into the ending. I think it just leaves you on a really beautiful note. I'm, I'm going to say this mm. right now. Uh, in a just universe, mm. Leah Lewis would be in contention for an Academy Award nomination. She's, she's excellent. She's so goddamn yeah. good in this movie. Like, she is... I mean, she's a young actor, but not every young actor ha- can have, like, the depth of character and mm. be as thoughtful as she is without coming across as robotic. She is a really interesting, fascinating, fully formed yeah. character she's not- who, still, who thinks she knows everything and doesn't know a damn thing and gradually comes to learn mm. that and is all the wiser for it. What mm. a great arc. Uh, but there's also, I just want... Sorry, yeah. Well, Alice Wu wrote, wrote and directed this. She's clearly very smart and very cultured, and yeah. she wanted to write like things she actually knew about into the screenplay. Yeah. So, of course, there's like Vin Vendor's quotations, <laughs> yeah. and they quote Sartre several times because Alice Wu has clearly read these things and knows yeah. these things. It's it's not a smart person written by a dumb person. Yeah, it's, it's always smart, frustrating it, yeah, when you it's, read It's that. like yeah. a legitimately smart person who's you know, actually making... The references correctly. But I want to, I actually want to take a moment because I feel like Leah Lewis is getting a lot of the attention for this film, mm. and she should. And I feel like Alexis Lemire is getting a lot of attention mm. because she's the center of the film's attention. But I just want to give a big shout out to Daniel uh, Deemer, mm. uh, the kid who plays like the, the quote unquote dumb jock. What a wonderful, <laughs> like, dumb character. Like, and I don't mean they, dumb in like a mean, a they horrible ba- way. They balance he's, him okay. They balance him okay because here's the deal: he's not much of a reader. Mm. He's not a great conversationalist, but he's, he's honest really, he's and really he, well-meaning. He means well, and he really cares about people, and he's supportive of our protagonist when the need comes, and when in the end things are revealed to him, and he was completely oblivious to it. He has a very natural repressed reaction to things that he works through and becomes a better person, not because he's brilliant, but because he's not bad. And there's something just like really refreshing about being able to to take a character who a lot of the humor in the movie comes from. He's not very bright, is he? He's kind of slow on the uptake, this guy. However... He doesn't feel like a false character. Mm. He feels like a real guy, and there's well, a lot of sympathy and care for him, mm. even though you know any other character in the movie could probably talk him under the table. Yeah, there, there's something I kind of resent in a lot of movies uh, about sort of stuffed shirts coming out of their shells. 
You know, in, intellects, mm. you just need to go to a party and smoke weed and have a good time, and then you'll be a complete human being. Fuck you. Yeah. That, that person probably spent a lot of time reading because they don't want to do that specifically. And I, I'm uh, tired of introversion a, being something that can be cured by a night on the town. Yeah. Well, that's just a, that's just a not way just, of not being. Just, not just introversion, just somebody who's not a party kid. Uh, yeah. uh, well, I'm just saying, I feel like introverts can there, kind of get treated a, that way. Like, of you'll be half. fixed when you're not introverted. Yeah, there, I find that very ugly. There, there's a... a portion of this movie where it looks like she's going to be introducing the jock character to like books and he's going to be getting like maybe not get smarter but at least develop an appreciation for uh more sophisticated arts and she's going to go to his house and enjoy like hot dog tacos and like the jock stuff that he likes and it would eventually turn into this story of how she needs to come out of her shell and do like dumb jock uh-huh. stuff to be complete she needs to be and popular lu- and luckily they back off from that uh, it's mm-hmm. insufferable while it's happening it's the part of the film I like it's the least in- I don't feel like it's insufferable though I feel mm-hmm. like it's they're young and they're trying different things and she gets That's- an opportunity to go to a party she tried mm-hmm. I went to a couple of dances in high school I didn't like dances Mm. But you know why I went? I'm in high school. I should probably go to a couple or I'll be 40 and I'll regret not doing it. Mm. And then I went. It was a waste of an evening, but at least I know. <laughs> she goes out. She doesn't have the worst time in the world, but it's clearly not something she's going to be doing again. Mm. And again, it's a sort of thing where, again, there are all of these tropes, all of these repeated motifs and scenes and setups that we see in romantic comedies over and over and over again. Many of them ripping off Cyrano de Bergerac of only for a scene or two when someone feeds someone lines in order to get through a date. Mm. I feel like Alice Wu appreciates the genre. She likes the genre. But she doesn't want to use these things if they don't make sense for the characters mm. and if using those tropes would undermine the characters. Mm. And that, I think, is the genius of this film is that it really works on not just a genre level. It hits all the beats. You're going to like it if that's the case. But on top of it all, really well acted. Really, really sweet. Mm. Really good a lot, movie. Lot of, a lot of personality. I liked it a really, lot. Really, really good movie. I hope everyone... Uh, uh, checks it out. I know a few people who haven't had the best reaction to it, but I firmly believe that it is a very well-crafted film. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's move on. Let's oh, yeah. talk about another film. I dropped my pen. <laughs> what what film would you like to talk about? Well, let's William? talk about let's talk about the other one we both saw. Let's mm-hmm. talk about Blood Quantum. Blood Quantum. This yeah. uh, this one debuted on Shutter. Uh, it's a Shutter film. <gasps> Yes, uh, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's a, a zombie film, which means it's a social justice film uh, because that's all zombie films do anymore. Um, that's all they've ever done because that's what zombies are. Uh, yeah, they they are a confrontation about society that reduces all of society to a microcosm of whatever survivors are left. Yeah. Uh, the and, zombies uh, typically represent everything from uh, capitalism slash consumerism to overpopulation uh, to group mentality yeah, and uh, 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 what am I thinking of? Um, not not just group think mob mentality. Mob, okay. You know, um, herd, but herd mentality. Herd mentality. Yeah. When basically the entire world is coming after you. Yeah, and uh, this this is as old as the genre. Night of the Living Dead is an intensely political film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the zombie films that are bad are the not political ones. Uh, oh, I don't know about that. There's okay, a few... Day of the Dead doesn't have a very rich politic to I, it. But I don't it's think awesome. No, I think it's... Day of the Dead does. I think Day of the Dead is very much a paranoid thriller. But uh, it's, uh, it's 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 about a... military rule. I agree. In microcosm, yeah, I, but, yeah. I, I think uh, Shaun of the Dead isn't particularly political. I think mm. it has a lot on its mind about. 
John growing up. Play, and yeah. Well, but the thing is, it's a lot about, uh, you know, growing up and, like, uh, how uh, arrested adolescence and the sort of man-child persona of, like, that was very popular in movies in the 2000s and beyond in particular. Mm. Um about how when the shit really hits the fan, you have to get your shit together really quick. Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that's a particularly political movie, but mm. a lot of them are. Yeah. I'll, and this one, it's it's right there on the surface. Blood Quantum is a zombie apocalypse movie in which the only people who are immune to the zombie virus are uh, First Nation people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the director, Jeff Barnaby, is of the Mi'kmaq tribe of, of Canada, and... Of, of what uh, what has come to be called Canada, and yeah, it's it's about uh, Native American experience uh, during a zombie apocalypse. Now, uh, if you if you haven't seen uh, Sherman Alexie's Smoke Signals or uh, any other films about the Native American experience, mm-hmm. there aren't a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least at least told from the perspective yeah. of like those filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, like there's a ton of stuff about like white people making movies. Mm. About like Dances with Wolves, for example, whatever. And you can say what you will about whether or not that's a good movie, but it's from a certain perspective. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, th- this is made by an actual Indian, and I say Indian because Sherman Alexi said that's the preferred term. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, we're doing our best. The the, uh, the Indian characters, yeah, do are living on a pretty rundown reservation, as a lot, from what I understand, a lot of reservations are. They're they're uh, kind of. A, impoverished areas in many cases and so when uh, the zombie apocalypse breaks out and infects even like animals and the lo- like yeah. the first zombie creature we see is a fish and a really die. creepy sequence yeah someone yeah. catches a fish and they just put it on a table they're about mm-hmm. to cut it up and it just won't stop flopping and there's something really just kind of eerie about how simple that is mm. and we haven't really seen that just before completely unnerving yeah it's really gross but um and then the first act of the film we meet all the characters. There's a sheriff. Mm. Uh, his son is in trouble with the law, but he's not that bad a kid. But he has another son who is. And uh, we meet a lot of people in this community. And we see that it's a pretty tight-knit community. A lot of people really like each other. There's some drama and familial turmoil. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, all the white people start turning into zombies. And then we cut to six months later... And America is basically quickly turned into the road warrior, except for their land. <laughs> Which, yeah, they're trying, they're fighting to keep their land. Yeah. Uh, metaphor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pretty obvious metaphor. But there's uh, also some uh, some good irony here, as a lot of, as all of a sudden, they're the most civilized place in the world, and all the white people are like, can we come on your land? And they're just like, oh, I don't know. The, this, is, this is all we have left. Are you kidding me? Yeah, this is all there is now. <laughs> Now. You kind of screwed up okay. everything. Take out your $20 bill. Look at that guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and indeed, there's a lot of, especially like the younger uh, people uh, who are surviving at this compound, they're not really on board with like sheltering all these all these people. And there are a lot of the, the old animosities that have been brewing up for generation after generation at this point. Uh, it's going to come to a really ugly head. Mm. After a while. But for a lot of the movie, it, there's a lot of just standard zombie stuff. There's some really cool 
zombie gags in here about like there's one where like a zombie is like cut in half but it's hanging by its entrails from like a window so it's like still gonna come and get you rah, but only the top <laughs> half and it's really gross and I've never seen the, that gag the, before the gore effects are pretty first rate in this movie yeah. uh, anytime a zombie gets blasted in the head with a shotgun you get to see this gigantic plume of blood across a wall yeah um the zombie stuff is so awesome it's boring in fact um <laughs> like there there's there like when we do that sort of smash cut to 6 months later we catch up with some of the characters and they're already in like full bore like PlayStation 3 zombie video game survival. Yeah, they're all wearing like cool masks awesome and masks leather. And yeah, I got these like outfits that are clearly designed in a Hollywood studio somewhere. It's like, oh, please. You were doing so well by being kind of understated and thoughtful. And in fact, what I like most about Blood Quantum is it does have this pervading sense of sadness yeah. throughout. Uh, a lot of the older characters are, are just saying, you know what? Our, our people have been oppressed for so long in this country. Yeah. Uh, in Canada and we've been sort of pushed around and shoved onto these undesirable pieces of land all we have left is land that we never really that we people have deigned that we can keep and all of a sudden you know everybody just wants to kill us again it's like when is the oppression just never stops for us yeah there's a lot of weariness and just because it's zombies doesn't mean anything's really changed so yeah, that that kind of world weariness, the scene like the scenes with Gary Farmer, like really. Oh, I love Gary Farmer. <laughs> Gary Farmer's a really underappreciated actor. Yeah. If you know him, you probably know him best from the movie Dead Man with Johnny mm-hmm. Depp's a Jim Jarmusch western. He's wonderful yeah. in that movie, and he's and, really good in this too. Uh, and in fact, he he gets to say the same line in both. He says, "A oh, stupid fucking white man." He says that <laughs> a, a, a lot. He says that a lot in Dead Man. He says that in this movie too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when it's sort of playing on just sort of this endless, almost nihilistic, tragic plight of some of the older characters who just realize this doesn't end and we're, we can, we're going to fight because that's in us, but, but that's a perspective we, we have to survive, that, but it's a perspective we really haven't seen a lot of in the, in the zombie genre and mm. certainly not from this very specific perspective. Yeah. Um, when, when it's like the young guys yelling at each other and, you know, smashing zombie faces, Ooh man, I'm going to kill this guy. And yeah. th- there's even kind of a sad subplot with a younger, uh, younger, younger Indian character and his white girlfriend. Yeah. And she's pregnant. Yeah. And now they're they not sure know. if, the baby's going to be immune to the plague or not, yeah. and she has nightmares about it crawling through her stomach, mm. just like has happened in zombie movies. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's a little sad, but I, I feel like yeah. the older characters are the ones that are really kind of carrying. They're the this. ones. They're they're the characters mm. we haven't seen a lot of in zombie movies. There's yeah. a lot of not a lot of zombie movies emphasize, highlight, and focus on older people. Yeah. And what it is like to deal with this kind of apocalyptic cataclysm when you're mm-hmm. towards the end of your life and not the beginning. Yeah. I I got to go to a screening of A Nightmare on Elm Street once with Wes Craven in person. Ooh. It was a, like a live commentary sort of thing. That's amazing. And, and uh, he was there and the and I think Bob Shea was in the other uh, producer was in the audience uh, as well and he says he's just going to talk about the movie but he'll also take a few questions and I got to ask him a question. I asked, "Why is A Nightmare on Elm Street about teenage characters and not necessarily adult adults because the story works either way. Yeah, it's a guy it who kills just, you in your dreams. Could be anything. Could, yeah, could, that could stalk uh, people in their sixties, and yeah. yeah, maybe their parents, like a generation ago, were the ones that killed Freddie, and now he's only catching up with them yeah. when they're older people as well. That's just as effective a story, right? Like the story's the same on on paper. That's and, the idea. And yeah. Wes Craven's answer was, well, you know, adults wouldn't see this movie. 
you know, dream demon. It's going to be about teenagers, so I'm going to make it about teenagers. And I feel like that's the ethos of a lot of horror filmmakers. They want to make it about uh, people who are the age of the intended audience or the, the age that the intended audience wants to be. That is, if they're teenagers, they might want to be in their early 20s. So they're sort of like height of their sexiness and badassery. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my favorite horror movies, or at least re- a lot of really notable horror movies, are about older people. Changeling with George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist is about those older guys. It's about a young girl and the parents and the older people. Yeah. Re- uh, once Reagan is like fully possessed, it's not even a young girl anymore. It's a demon. Yeah, yeah. So it's more, most of the movie mm-hmm. is about the parents and the priests. Yeah. Can, can you imagine a version of The Exorcist where it's just a bunch of screaming, panicking teenagers? That'd be awful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's been done. I'm sure it has. The Exorcist has been ripped off. Yeah. Uh, I really love the movie Bubba Hotep, which is about two guys yeah. in their 80s. <laughs> Again, we're, I feel like there's been too much emphasis on trying to make sure that mainstream, especially genre movies, mm-hmm. uh, connect with what is perceived as the widest audience. Because the widest audience is too narrow. Mm. What they consider the widest audience is usually white young men. Mm. That's considered, you know, the the ultimate quadrant yeah. for most like studio films, and that's of course nonsense because if we look at that as an audience, then everyone else is a different audience, and they're bigger. <laughs> there's yeah. there's so many more, and the thing is, is just we just we're not making enough movies that uh, uh, speak to that other perspective mm-hmm. and from that angle blood quantum is really very refreshing and very distinctive and very very cool and even when there are c- scenes in this movie that are just the protagonists of the movie killing zombies that's really really cool to let other people have a chance to kill all those zombies mm-hmm. there's like a grandfather in this movie who also has a samurai sword and gets to <laughs> chop up zombies like nobody's business and I it's really that. really badass oh, oh, who plays the grandfather? I don't it's recall really awesome. um, so all of that, that stuff is really really cool but unfortunately I, I, I feel like Blood Quantum doesn't quite go as far as it could either in terms of uh, pushing what the zombie narrative could be from a different perspective because on some respects it's just another zombies are out there, we're in here zombies get in here mm. some of the humans in here are also going to get other humans killed yeah. because humanity is inherently flawed and then we're all going to run from zombies on some level that element of the film is a little rote yeah, and well, I wish that they there is so much more commentary that could have been made. There's so many more. Well, I mean, the com- characters that we could explore in a more interesting way, and the commentary on colonialism is right there on the surface. It's right and, there, and I think that works just fine. The problem is, it's uh, bound in by the limits of the genre. Yeah. There's only so much you can do with a zombie film. I I, I tweeted this. I feel like the uh, the way we film zombie kills is the same as the way we film car commercials, mm. like. There's only so many ways you can photograph a car, and we've done them all already. <laughs> so every car commercial is going to look kind of the same, and I think we've kind of reached the limit of what we can do with a human body in a zombie movie. Okay, every time we say that, someone comes up with something new. So well, I'm going to say this right now. Fine, do it. Surprise no, no, I'm just me. saying. I'm just saying. saying. These things are cyclical. Mm. I do believe that there is this tendency when we've hit like this like 
saturation point with the genre mm. uh, to start writing off movies just because they're not doing enough new, not because they're doing anything bad. Mm. And I want to make this clear. Blood Quantum is a very well-crafted movie. Absolutely. Everyone yeah, in it is giving a gangbusters performance. The zombie violence is really, really cool. There's a lot of great gore effects. Um, it's just, we don't get enough zombie films from this kind of perspective, and I would have liked more. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have seen more of the stuff that makes this movie distinctive than the stuff that fits it tidily within the genre. Yeah. Um, this is not the worst problem for a movie to have. I do recommend this movie. It's a cool zombie film. Sure. I okay. agree. I agree. All right. Fair <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about a movie called Bull. Bull. Uh, Bull was a big winner at Cannes just last year. Um, it's directed by Annie Silverstein. Uh, it's about... Um, a teenage girl who is growing up in poverty in, um, I think it's in Iowa. Um, it, it's, it's in an, an impoverished sort of quote forgotten you know part of, of middle America that, yeah. that a lot of politicians like to talk about. Uh, yeah, it's about a, a young teenage girl. Her mom is in prison for a crime we never really learn about. She doesn't get to see her mom a lot. She has a little sister, She and she lives with her grandmother, and her grandmother is just kind of hates having to deal with her, and she lives this kind of miserable life. Hmm. Uh, her neighbor is an aging rodeo rider, yeah. and, and also rodeo clown, who has made just enough money to be respectful but he's black so he doesn't get to sort of ride with the white rodeos essentially mm-hmm. there's there's black rodeos and there's white rodeos in this little town and so he is kind kind of a respected side figure in this tiny little circle in the in this very rural area uh this is very understated film understated <laughs> is a great great crit word you'll hear critics say understated a lot that is there's a lot of long penetrating shots of people looking out windows, looking kind of miserable. Uh, however, sometimes that can be insufferable here. I think there's actually a lot of texture and a lot of life in what's going on. Uh, the young lead is played by, uh, Amber Havard is her name. And she has a, a really fierce energy to her. She's really, uh, angry and kind of put out. And when she realizes sort of the, full extent of how bad her situation is and how much her grandmother really doesn't like being with her. She has to slowly come to terms with the fact that she's just going to have to start figuring something out to do on her own. Yeah. Like she can't rely on her mom getting out and things kind of turning around at some point. And of course, one of the first things she can think to do is sell drugs. Uh, she, yeah. she knows some wasteoids It'll some guys who sell pills out in this area where everybody's addicted to pills. So she decides to, try that out and of course it doesn't end very well uh but at the same time one day when she's really bored she breaks into her neighbor's house her neighbor is played by rob morgan and decides to just sort of have a party in his house while he's out because hmm. she's bored she invites some friends over and brings chickens into the house her pet dog ends up breaking into his chicken farm and like kills some of the chickens and he gets really really mad and they really hate each other, and yet she, pretty much just for a change of scenery, keeps breaking into his house <laughs> just so they can converse, so they can have different kinds of human connection that they're not used to. We get to see her 
trying to climb desperately up at the same time while he's clinging on for dear life as he's sliding down. It's pretty exhilarating. Wow. Um, yeah, I really, really love this movie. It's it's really sensitive, it's really humane, and it really captures something uh, very uh, textured and uh, uh, underseen in many films. Yeah. I feel like when we see poverty in films, it, it can be kind of fetishized in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. We're kind of wallowing in, oh, you know, there but for the grace of God go the audience. I'm glad I have mm-hmm. a little, little more money than these poor souls. Yeah, there's a certain amount uh, of condescension in a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, but uh, occasionally a filmmaker will really kind of crack it out. I was reminded of American Honey from a couple of years back, mm-hmm. uh, where, which is about you know, impoverished people living on the road and uh, the the portrait of how kind of run down everything really is, really is in in America in certain parts of America, so that part's re- uh, captured really well. But I think the the soulfulness of the characters and the relationship and their two journeys are are very uh, uh, wonderfully honest. Well, I really I really really liked both. You know that sounds like mm. a really perfect companion piece to mm. a film that I saw, and sadly you didn't. Mm. Um, it's called Driveways. It's the latest film from Andrew On. Uh, who had previously directed a film called Spa Night, uh, which was uh, about a young man in the like Korean community in I think Los Angeles um, who starts working at a spa to make ends meet, and he discovers that pe- men are having sex in the spa, and mm-hmm. he has to okay. <laughs> come to terms with his own sexuality. And um, it's there's a really good sense of place in the movie, but I don't think that anything in that movie prepared me for how good Driveways is. Driveways is wonderful. I've reviewed this before, I think, because uh, this I reviewed this out of a film festival last year, uh, and I wrote a review for The Wrap, and I think I reviewed it on the podcast, but it finally came out on VOD uh, this week, and I want to make sure people know about it. It features one of, if not the last performance uh, on film from Brian Dennehy, who just died a few weeks ago, um, and it is about a woman played by Hong Chow. Uh, from um, downsizing, uh, she and her young son are going to her sister's house. Mm-hmm. Her sister has just passed away, and they're just they're going there to get her affairs in order. You mm-hmm. know, pack everything up, sell the house, move on with their lives. They were a bit estranged. She hadn't talked to her in a long time, so she's surprised when she gets there to find out that her sister was a hoarder, and Ooh, her okay. house is packed. Full of stuff. It's so full of stuff that apparently her sister hadn't noticed that a cat died in one of the rooms a long time ago and they have to deal with that. Yeah, it's really just, it's a real problem. And it's so packed full of stuff, Mm. they can't even stay there. And they don't have any money, so they can't get a hotel or anything. So they are like camping on the front porch <laughs> and they're just stuck there way longer than they thought. And they're, it's not a great situation and it just kind of sucks. And next door neighbor to them is Brian Dennehy, an old man. He's a veteran. I think his wife died a long time ago and he's just kind of lonely, you know, just waiting mm-hmm. things out. He's got adult kids. They live elsewhere. He just gets up, makes himself breakfast, Sits on the porch, goes to play bingo, comes home. And that's his life. And he's just there, next door. And they're next door as well. And they sort of regard each other. And start getting... It's almost like the fox in uh, The Little Prince. And they just start coming a little closer together. And eventually, uh, Hong Chao wants her son to sort of, you know, 
have things to do. Mm-hmm. And she encourages him to like hang out with the other kids in the neighborhood. A lot of the other kids in the neighborhood are jerks. And this kid is a quiet introverted nerdy kid who loves reading and like puzzles and things (laughs) so he ends up spending more time with brian dennehy and they form a really close friendship and that's it and that's enough because this movie is so tenderly constructed out of like love and little conversations and small moments of character um it's not a chapter that I think most people would even think to include in the book of these people's lives, but while they're living it, it's everything they've got. Is this one short-lived conversation between this boy and his elderly neighbor? This, the this hangout for while mom is in town doing this, and it ends up being really important to both of them. And the kid realizes that he connects more with elderly people than he does kids his own age. And Brian Dennehy starts like, you know, kind of just, he wasn't a curmudgeon or anything. He was just a homebody. There was no one else there. And he finally gets to like break out a little bit and start confronting Mm -hmm. his own emotions and speak about things about his own mortality. But he's talking to a kid and the kid doesn't get it. So you can only tell him so much and there's so much left unsaid. And God, it's sad. But it's really, really beautiful. And Brian Dennehy gives one of his best performances. Certainly, I've never seen him hmm. on stage. I hear he's amazing on stage. But I've seen a lot of his movies. And I think this is like upper echelon. What a great role to go out on if you have to go out on a role. And this is just a really mm-hmm. wonderful film. Everyone's really, really great in it. Um, it's just top flight all around. And if you have an opportunity... Uh, to sit down with it. I hope you do. It's called Driveways. It mm. is wonderful. Uh, I almost put it on my best of the year list last year because I saw it last year at a festival. Mm. And it was only at the end of the year that I realized, shit, this never came out, did it? And it finally <laughs> came out now. So it, given how the year is going, how there might not be a lot of con- not be a lot of competition, there's a decent chance Driveways could end up on my best of the year list this year. Mm. But it would have at least made my runners up last year. So it's a really, really wonderful film, and I hope everyone sees it. Nice. Yeah. Tell me, let's move on. Tell me about Clementine. Uh, Clement, uh, well, why don't we cover? Um, you saw another film. You want to end with from, from this week, from last week, because mm. maybe we should do last week's. And uh, I'll do. Clementine. It doesn't matter. They're all they're all out now. It's not like one of them is going to leave theaters okay. soon, and everyone can. Uh, Clementine. Click on them now. A lot of films this week directed by women. I love yeah. that. Uh, Clementine is. Um, this is the other. Uh, lesbian coming of age drama uh, that I was, hmm. that I alluded to at the beginning of the show. This is a film by Lara Gallagher. Uh, it's uh, let's see. I, I describe how did I describe Bull as understated? Yeah. This one is at a dead stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, is that a good thing? Well, Clementine is constructed very much like a Claire Denis film, in that we're not given a lot of information directly. We kind of have to glean what's going on as the film slowly progresses and things kind of reveal themselves over a a long period of time. Uh, It's about a young woman named Karen. She's played by an actress named uh, Otmara Marrero. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has recently broken up with her girlfriend and flees to that girlfriend's sort of like lakeside cottage. However, we don't really figure out what's going on because she's she's breaking into this cottage. We don't know who she is. And also, there's a younger girl there, who's a teenage girl, like in a swimsuit, sunning out on the deck, and we don't know who she is or why she's there. 
In fact, we don't know anything. We don't. We get very little dialogue. Mm-hmm. But uh, we sense this weird sort of kinship between the two of them immediately. There's a lot of mysterious music. There's a lot of meaningful looks. And we start getting Tyler Durden feelings real fast. Oh, no. It's like, oh, no, this is like a facet of her. She's a hallucination or something. But no, they go for a drive and they look for a dog and they have these really kind of stilted conversations. This younger girl says that she's 19, but clearly she's younger than that. They have these really weird conversations about nothing in particular. Mm. Uh, the dialogue is not pushing anything forward, and we do eventually. And then, uh, of course, there's a, a wild card is thrown into this. A teenage boy is also kind of drifting in and out, and the younger girl is very slowly, in subtle ways, perhaps presumably, uh, seducing Karen, the Karen mm. character. And yeah, we're not really sure what part of this is like psychosexual manipulation or what the true nature of the relationship is between these two. Uh, you know, the, there's all of these weird kind of setups like, oh, let me rub your shoulders. Let me, let me braid your hair. And it starts to feel mm. like it's, it's tastefully done, but this is clearly like kind of a, a sex fantasy, like almost a pornographic setup, right. but it never goes in that direction. And eventually we do come to have a, of a concrete truth revealed to us, which sets the Karen character off on, uh, for what this film's version of a mission is. Right. I'm a big fan of Claire Denny. I do like the way she does obfuscate and how she doesn't feel the need to give us exposition. She's really clever about taking exposition out, and I think uh, th- this director, uh, Lara Gallagher... Yeah, I was about to say, a, I, th- you, I thought you were telling me Claire Denis directed this. I'm like, no, no. Oh, that's slipping on my radar. No, no, uh, okay. a new Claire Denis film, you, you'd notice. <laughs> I uh, feel like I would have yeah. heard, but yeah, okay. But yeah, Lara Gallagher is clearly taking a lot of pages from Claire Denis' book and taking out a lot of the important bits of exposition, which really, when you think about it, aren't important because what is cinema if not a series of moments and a lot of those moments don't need as much context as a lot of screenwriters feel they need to give them there's a there's an interesting moment in um okay so there's certain movies that people tweet at us tell us we got to see mm. would you please review this and yeah. we try to get to them when we can but we're busy and it's hard oh, to catch yeah, up sometimes. Right. And sometimes uh, we already have screeners lined up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we do the best we can. But I finally caught up with a movie uh, this week that people have been telling me to watch for at least since it came out. Mm-hmm. I finally saw Velocipaster. Oh God. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna say I've, this. I've, I've, I saw the title. I was idly curious for a moment, but then I didn't watch it. I'm gonna <laughs> tell you this right now. I'm gonna, yeah. I, and there's a reason I bring it up. Um, it's better than you'd think. Okay. It's not one of those like it, oftentimes like you'll see a movie called something like Velocipaster mm. or you know Death Lichen or whatever the hell it is and you think to yourself Shark, Sharkster yeah, yeah Pizza Puma <laughs> Apocalypse <laughs> They're Pumas, watch, but they're made of pizza. I'd, Gross. Wa- I'd watch the hell out of Pizza Puma Apocalypse. I, I imagine Apocalypse actually has like an apostrophe, so it's Pizza, pizza Puma, Puma Apocalypse. apocalypse. <laughs> Trademarks. You, you can't make that without without talking to me first. Um, but anyway, so I'm watching this movie, Velocipaster, and I expect crap. And it is crap, but it knows it's crap. Mm. It's actually kind of funny in like a surprisingly good drama movie kind of way, okay. where they understand that we're playing with... 
you know, the limitations of our budget and our storyline. And there are a few bits in the movie where it's actually like surprisingly clever. There's a bit at the beginning where the pastor who would eventually uh, travel to China and uh, accidentally get stabbed by a velociraptor tooth and would become aware of velociraptor and eventually would fight crime. Um, but initially, that all he has to kick off when he's a priest. Sorry, it's pastor. He's doing his pastor pastorly duties, and he's like waving to his parents, and they're across the street. And then you hear an explosion off camera, and the parents die. Hmm. And when we cut back to like, we see him go, oh, no! And then we cut to his point of view, which should be like a burning car and his dead parents. They can't afford that. Mm. So what they did was they showed the empty street and just said, insert VFX shot, burning car. Oh, there you go, yeah. And here's the damnedest thing. Because the movie's already pretty tongue-in-cheek, that gets the job done. <laughs> we know. We know what we're supposed yeah, well, to see in that. Oh, no, we just yeah. we know what we're supposed to see in that shot. Yeah. That shot is almost unnecessary. We'd feel weird if it wasn't there. But just calling attention to the fact that we did the shot, we just yeah. didn't put anything in it. It just calls attention to just how unimportant like a lot of the things we take for granted as being important yeah. are in the cinema. And you can lift that kind of exposition right out. Yeah, and the movie will be fine because we all know we yeah, all the, uh, it's it's all you barely have to mention things now and we just read them in our head. Yeah, there's just way too much emphasis on story in yeah. in films. Like, oh, and you need to tell this by you know the whole save the cat thing. Tell this yeah. on page fifteen and this by page thirty. It needs to be on camera all the time. Mm. You cannot reveal it in dialogue, yeah. and uh, that's it's. It's that's, that's not good storytelling. That's limited storytelling. Well, that, that's that's a way to understand the absolute basics of storytelling if you know nothing about cinema. Yeah, it's and it's hand holding at its at its it, it's the at its fir firmest. first half of first year of film school. Yeah. Um, and we and learn these things for a reason. But you, you, you could take you, you know you could take the essence of like any like almost any film story really and mm -hmm. tell it in a thirty second commercial spot. It doesn't need like cinema isn't sort of expanding a, a story. Story is kind of a disposable thing if you think yeah. about it in a lot of ways. It's and experience and understanding <clears throat> and character so and emotion I feel and like, thought and intelligence yeah. and themes. These are the reasons why it's necessary to make a movie because yeah. I can give you the gist of King Kong in a yeah. sentence. No. Clementine, the for at least the first two thirds of it is really skillful in how it's kind of downplaying sort of these more technical structured aspects. And I yeah. like that it does feel like it's a little bit more natural, uh, weird sort of breathing machine rather than a cinema but it turns into something a little bit more structured actually loses a lot of my interest mm. and uh, it also reveals that a lot of that mystery at the the beginning might have just been style rather than trying to say something really kind of profound right uh, ultimately it's quite intriguing but it's not wholly successful that's a shame yeah. um all right well there's no good segue into porno no, there never is. Is there? Is there, yeah. is there? Okay, so there's a new horror movie out. It's on VOD. It is from Fangoria. It's an independent uh, uh, horror comedy. It's called Porno. And it's got a really good setup, and I really like the setup, and I thought it sounded fun, so I made sure I made the time for it this week. Um, it takes place in a movie theater, and all of the teenagers who work there uh, are... Uh, you know, after after it closes down, they're going to watch a movie, and then they find in the basement an old film canister that has 
a creepy erotic film from what looks like the 70s. And when they screen it... Oh, I've, it un- I've, I've worked with a bunch of those. Yeah. I, yeah, I know you have. And when they, But when they screen it, it unleashes an evil succubi from hell. <laughs> succubus. Oh, that's right. It's only one of them. Yeah. So succubus. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but several it, would be succubus. Anyway, so now they're trapped in this movie theater and they're all getting seduced by this succubus. Hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a decent setup for a low-budget genre film. Linnea Quigley. No, no, there's no, no, there's no like cool horror cameo. It's not uh, like Tony Todd plays the manager of the theater. Bar- Barbara like Crampton. Or, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's no one in particular you'd recognize. The young cast is all pretty fresh. They're all quite good, um, but um, but they're in a movie called Porno. They're in a movie called Porno, which is you know, it, it, I think when you have that title, immediately your expectations go down a little bit. Well, it's either a really cheesy, horrible horror comedy, or it's like a Gaspar Noe film. Yeah, and if it's a Gaspar Noe film, it's probably going to be kind of insufferable. And if it's cheap and cheesy, <laughs> I'm not a fan. If, if and it's a cheap and cheesy uh, uh, horror movie, there's two ways that can go. It can be legitimately good, cheap and cheesy, or it could just be shit. Mm. And I was really, really worried it would be the latter. What I was surprised to discover is that porno... Though it has very distinct flaws, um, there's actually some really interesting stuff going on here. And one of the things that the filmmakers do in sort of an incidental way is, okay, so our villain is a succubus. She's going to be tempting all of our teenagers. Rather than having our teenagers all be like drugged up horn dogs who mm. are going to smoke pot and like have sex in the projector room anyway, mm. they're all conservative Christian kids. <laughs> all of them. And like you think for a second this is gonna be that thing where there's like a couple of cons- a couple of like really hardcore Christians and they're like uh, but be like the goth girl is gonna who like is the assistant manager is gonna roll her eyes. Nope. Also Christian. Every character in the movie who isn't the villain right. is a is just an honest to goodness Christian. Now the movie is not a Christian film. It's not like uh, you know, Kirk Cameron joint. Like it's got nudity and sex and horrific violence, and they don't make fun of their Christianity per se. Although they do make fun of uh, uh, things like uh, there's a character who uh, is alienated from a girl who had a crush on him, and he went away to camp for the summer. Mm. He's a senior in high school. And he came back talking about how he has a new girlfriend named Jasmine who you've never met. Ah, I see. Yes. So he went to a a, a conversion camp. Oh, God. So they talk about stuff like that. The movie takes place in the early 90s, which is smart for a couple of levels. One, it takes cell phones out of the equation. Uh, Two, you know, there's only so much distance away from the 1970s sleaze they're talking about. And and no internet porn. And no internet porn as well. So when they actually encounter a pornographic film, it's something none of them have seen. And they're watching this. It's kind of a rarity. They're watching this pornographic film. And yeah, of course, they're they're Christian as well and they're pretty good Christians and so they haven't been actively seeking this stuff out but you know a couple of them are horny horny teens and so they really really want to put it on and they do and when they put on the film uh, it's like I'm trying to think of like a good example of like 
it, it's like devil worship porn. It's like nun exploitation kind oh, of okay, porn. Yeah, yeah. Like there's like, like the, people like, carving pentagrams into things and the opening scenes of yeah. the Love Witch. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah, and like you know people in cloaks and putting their hands over naked flesh and lots of really weird cross cutting and uh, and there's this really cute bit where all of these like really innocent kids are just like. Is this what all porn is like? Is it all demonic? And it's kind of it's kind of funny. And then the projectionist realizes what they're watching, and he immediately turns it off. I will not have the sinful film in my projector. Um, and so you're, when you're, they're here, projectionist dude. <laughs> and so when they all and and it's actually cute. The the two mm. films that are showing at their two film theater, mm. Encino Man and A League of Their Own. <laughs> That's cute. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A so League of Their Own becomes like a important later. Multiplex, sort of. Yeah, twoplex, but yes, mm. it's it, the League of Their Own actually becomes important later, mm. <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, but uh, so when they are each confronted by a succubus, they're being confronted not with something that is fun. They're being confronted with something that is keying into a lot of repression oh, or their anxiety about or sex, their anxieties yeah. or their their temptation is. Uh, really bubbling up at the surface, and it's actually harder for them to deal with it. Uh, when the violence gets violent, it gets kind of repulsively violent sometimes. Oh. There's a, a, a character who's... Er, I'll, I'll say this right now. It's one of those movies where everything that they say at the beginning of the movie is important later. So, like, when the guy says, like, okay, so I'm, only, I'm giving you your copies of the keys, but, of course, I'll put an extra copy of the keys right here. Mm. This will be important later. <laughs> that kind of thing. And so when a character talks about, you know, the sort of things that people who don't really understand how sexuality works, they view it from a level of uh, sin and fear, mm. uh, say something like, no. The human testes can actually explode. Yeah. That will happen later. Oh, jeez. And we're going to get a close-up. Mm. That was unnecessary. And it makes the movie go from sort of amusingly crass to just completely off-puttingly grotesque for like a minute. Mm. Like a complete solid just like, I did not, there's nothing in your movie that made us need to go here at all. It's so damn gross. And that's a big overcalculation. They just they thought they could do the most disgusting thing ever. And I'm like, no, the key to this movie working is that it's actually kind of sweet. Mm. And I like a lot of the characters and they're naive and they're funny. I want uh, the guy who plays uh, the projectionist is really fucking funny. Like a really <laughs> great um uh, uh, just standout character, you know, like um, Jamie Kennedy in uh, Scream, that kind of thing. Like the one mm. character just oh, goes, yeah, "Oh, yeah. I want to see that guy anymore." Uh, his name, the the actor's name is Robbie Tan. Uh, apparently, he's on the show Preacher, or at least he was um, for an episode. So good for him. But um, mm. he's really, really great. Uh, if you like, you know, crass horror comedies. Mm. This is one of the better ones I've seen in a bit. Okay. It is on all-time classic territory, but it is an entertaining watch, except for a couple of bits where they push their luck too much, and they just mm. end up just merely being unpleasant. But, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, got an edge to it, but it's not hateful or cruel. Um, 
it's not nearly as uh, uh, mean as it could have been. It's just a they they get the right tone. I think it's, it's clearly the the filmmakers watch stuff like you know Peter Jackson's Dead Alive, and they oh, realize nice. that okay. the reason why Dead Alive can get away with the lawnmower scene is because most of the movie is played with the naivete of a Disney film. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, they they ride the line pretty hard, but I think mm-hmm. it mostly works. So uh, kudos. Kudos to the All maker right. of porno. Of I'm porno. just going to say All that right. right now. All right, and it's time to... Is that it? Do no, I have, I have Arkansas. I forgot Arkansas! Tell me about Arkansas. Uh, I'd rather not. Uh, oh, no! Ar- Arkansas sucks. Um, <laughs> Arkansas is a new crime thriller from 1998, but it's coming out in 2020. Uh, it's directed by uh, Clark Duke, uh, the actor, the young oh, yeah. actor from uh, Hot Tub Time Machine. He was mm-hmm. in Kick-Ass. Um He's directing this one. It's his first film as a director. And, yeah, it is one of those, like, post-pulp fiction scuzzy crime movies writ large, right down to the casting. Ah. Uh, The main characters are played by Clark Duke and also Liam Hemsworth. Okay, every uh, time you say Clark Duke, I think you're saying Bill Duke. Not Bill Duke. Bill Duke from Predator, who is also an accomplished director. Uh, Yeah, he's really... No, this is... Clark Duke was, like, Kick-Ass's best friend. He was the the young guy in Hot Tub Time Machine. No, 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 I I like Clark Duke fine. His name is close enough to Bill Duke, and I know Bill Duke is a director. Liam Hemsworth and and Clark Duke play uh, these two... um, mid-level crime guys in Arkansas, and uh, they are asked to become drug runners at the behest of a local corrupt sheriff played by John Malkovich. Ah. 90s casting number one. Uh, And they all all answer to this evil uh, kind of shadowy, but when they finally meet him, he's really kind of friendly crime boss named Frog, played by Vince Vaughn, 90s casting number two. Mm -hmm. And he answers to an even more mysterious crime lord named simply Her, played by Vivica Fox, 90s Mm. casting number three. And it's really twisty-turny. I lost the plot thread numerous times throughout this movie because uh, it starts out with uh, these two drug guys, and they end up falling in with uh, John Malkovich, and it turns out a, a tertiary character wants to betray them and double-cross John Malkovich and torture him for the drug money, and Liam Hemsworth and Clark Duke have to take charge of things from the outside, and Clark Duke is dating this pretty young thing. And then the movie comes to a halt, and we flash back to the 1980s when Frog, played by Vince Vaughn, now the younger Vince Vaughn, kind of rose to power and kind of seized power in the local drug market to begin with. And it's not interesting. Uh, it's not, it's not, te- it thinks that quirkiness is the same thing as texture mm. and that uh, a fu- having a funny out, putting on a funny hat is the same thing as having a personality. Mm. Um, yeah. If it's like, okay, yeah, you, you carry a parrot on your shoulder, but what are you like? Oh, you carry a parrot. That's your personality. You carry a parrot on your shoulder. Mm. That's this in movie form. Arkansas is laboriously quirky. <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm one, sure that's not those, what they were going for. No, they're they're tr- and there are a few moments of like quiet soulfulness where they actually try to put some real humanity into it. I think Liam Hemsworth is actually a pretty good actor. When he gets uh, good material, yeah. he's solid, but he's one of those people who is so handsome. Yeah. He's often expected to carry something like uh, paranoia. <laughs> that movie with him and uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Harrison Ford and 
Uh, yeah, he's expected to just carry that. They give him nothing to carry. Yeah, I, I think they he, give him nothing. He, he can't do it. Here he's Sad. like kind of annoyed and put upon, and re- like really seems like he's eager to take charge of things because yeah. everybody else around him is kind of an idiot. And I think he he has a lot of personality. Vince Vaughn, you saw Clay Pigeons, right? Yeah, he can act. He no, Vince Vaughn is fine. It's just he's asked to do this kind of role that he's been doing for like. You know, what, for the last evil 25 years. He doesn't do evil Vince Vaughn that often. I, I suppose not. But I it's feel been like a while I, since I he's like done I've, evil Vince Vaughn. I feel Vaughn. like I've seen him do these kinds of roles numerous times. Well, that may be the case. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, by the end, it's like, okay, and now everybody's just sort of double-crossed each other and everybody gets the guns out and we're going to have... S- a lot of arterial spray and uh, along the way we're going to meet crime bosses who like to watch trauma movies to, as like rites of mm-hmm. passage and yes there's identical twin thugs at one point and they make jokes about how, the fact that they're identical twins yada 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 you know I kind of hated this movie th- there's, there's, it's really tricky quirk is tricky to do mm. because it's tempting to go 100% quirk mm. And if you're not a genius, like if, if you're not Monty Python levels of you, Dadaistic yeah. genius, <laughs> it's just overwhelming. And it's, it's. I'll say this unless you are quirky yourself. Mm hmm. Unless you're kind of a weird person, but even you're not then, gonna, you're not necessarily gonna work that out. Like, here's I'm, the problem I'm, with, here's the problem with that uh, though. Weird people, to them, they're normal. Yeah. So oftentimes, like, a, like John Waters is a weird guy. Yeah. When you watch a John Waters film, a lot of his movies are weird. Mm. However, to the weirdos in his movies, that's normal. Mm. So we get a lot of genuine moments, even though people are being odd. Mm. Then you look at something like Southland Tales. <laughs> <laughs> Which I know some people unironically love. Mm. I'm not one of those people, and I'll tell you why. There's so much these like individual scenes. Like if you just watch that like musical number in like the arcade or whatever with Justin Timberlake, it might seem like a really cool movie. But when the whole movie is at that level of quirkiness, mm-hmm. nothing ever pulls back enough to give a certain amount of contrast so that the quirk has something to feel different than. Mm. And when it's all quirk all the time, when it's all surreal all the time, it's boring. It well, becomes it, just as boring as nothing happening for me because yeah, it, well, it's, it's it, I, I'm used to it now. You're not yeah, you're not actually surprising me after the first twenty minutes I, or so. I, I feel like you can if you're a savvy enough film viewer, you can tell the difference between somebody who's genuinely interested in the weird stuff they're doing and the people who are trying to look weird for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like Arkansas is definitely the kind of move. Clark Duke is clearly trying to seem a little weird like this isn't really springing from his interests then you watch a film by someone like uh richard elfman Mm -hmm. who clearly has a deep passion for weirdos and weird shit Mm -hmm. or uh you know i'm trying to think of a movie that is just like really chaotic and strange all the way through but it's hilarious like schizopolis or or alex winters freaked was the the, oh yeah the the example i was gonna go to that movie's quirky and strange it's a slapstick comedy with monsters and weird special effects in it but you can tell that those people have a really hyperactive sense of humor and they they think this stuff is genuinely funny. Yeah. So Arkansas it, feels it comes, feels contrived is what you're saying. Absolutely. It's yeah. Yeah, 100% contrived. This is this is a weirdness made by a normie and uh, and it then that always hurts. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's that's I find that to be true although I didn't say this. One. <laughs> uh, all right, so it's time to review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. 
Mm. If you're new to the show, the critically acclaimed scale is as follows. We review movies on a scale of C- minus to C+, plus, mm. where a C is an average movie. Like, it's just... Eh. Like, that's it. Mm. Most movies are pretty average. Hence the word average. C-, minus, below average. Mm. And this gives everything from just not very good to legitimately absolutely 100% terrible. Mm. And then there's C+, which is above average, which is everything from pretty darn good to the best movie ever made. That's it. We don't like the binary system. We added a third one. <laughs> so on a scale of C- to C+, Whitney, where does Arkansas land? Arkansas is a C-. Minus. Nah, that's too bad. Yeah, it, it, it's maybe the higher... Pro- one of the higher profiles uh, profile films released this week, and yeah, it is just not worth it. That's thanks. Uh, porno, uh, porno. I'm giving a high C. Okay. Not not quite accomplished enough, not quite consistent enough to deserve a proper C plus. But uh, for horror hounds, for people who like uh, gore and silly comedy in equal measure, you're going to find enough to enjoy. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Not amazing, not an instant classic, but for a particular audience, you'll like it. But I can't recommend it to anyone beyond that. Mm. Uh, Clementine. Clementine, a C. Okay. I, I think there's a, like a, a really fascinating vibe to this movie, but uh, ultimately it's not as strong as, as I wish it was. Okay, Bull. I'm sorry, Driveways. Oh, I got to do Driveways. Drive, uh, yeah, driveways. Driveways. Uh, driveways is a big old C+. Mm. Uh, there aren't a lot of better dramas uh, that have come out so far this year. I mean, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Um, although I didn't see everything. Anyway, my point is this. It's excellent. It's wonderfully acted. It's very, very sweet. It's a story that isn't being told in every film you've ever seen. And it's a absolutely perfect send-off for the late, great Brian Dennehy, who uh-huh. gives like one of his best performances. Yeah. So I really hope people check it out. Big old C+. Nice. Uh, so, uh, Bull. Bull, also a C plus. It, it is really soulful, uh, humane, interesting, and uh, and and just ultimately very moving. Yeah, uh, Blood Quantum. Blood Quantum, a C. Yeah, I, I do like. Uh, even, even though the metaphor is very obvious, I think it's a very good metaphor. This uh, using zombies as a metaphor for colonialism. Mm. I do think the zombie gore is in a vacuum very spectacular, even though it's. Functionally, it ends up a little bit more dull. I think the the exciting zombie stuff is the least exciting part of the movie. Um, I kind of agree with you. I, yeah. I am also giving it a C. It's a high C. It's a very mm. well produced film, um, and when it is exploring different ideas and characters than we're used to in the zombie genre, it is absolutely above average and really quite good. But too much of the movie is hitting familiar beats, mm. uh, just you know, from a slightly different angle. Uh, and as a result, the movie doesn't quite feel as much of a step in a brand new direction as it really could have. It was all right there. Uh, so, uh, again, for zombie fans, horror fans, absolutely check it out. But mm. in generally speaking, it's not something I would recommend to literally anybody. Right. Well, not, not literally everybody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the half of it. The half of it. C+. Plus. Yeah. I really dug this movie. I think it's it's... Very clever, very sensitive, uh, just wonderful. Yeah, uh, the half of it. Yeah, I agree. I'm a I'm a big fan of the rom com genre. I think this movie understands what works about the genre and also what needs to be updated. Mm. Um, uh, it's really really wonderful performances across the board. Sparkling writing, really really great storytelling. Um, yeah, this is it's a, it's a winner, and I hope people check it out because it's really really great. 
All right, it's time for the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. Uh, on this episode of Critically Acclaimed, uh, we asked you to help us pick a classic film noir that was on the Criterion channel. Uh, Criterion has a lot of film noirs on their channel. We mm-hmm. had... Um, I'm trying to remember everything we put on our list. I know Elevator to the Gallows was on there. Yeah. And I think a Seijin Suzuki film as well. Uh, but the film you picked is... Uh, uh, not actually that much of a film noir. I got uh, I, I miss I this one was mis uh, misidentified to me. Yeah, well, and, uh, but it's but it is, however, absolutely delightful. It's called Green for Danger. It, it's a murder mystery uh, in, in sort of the pulp novel vein. Uh, it's not about uh, seedy criminals in basement rooms. It actually takes place mostly in a hospital, mm-hmm. and it's about a single charismatic detective who has to solve whether or not somebody was killed under the knife. Yeah. Uh, whether or not uh, th- somebody dies in a hospital, and, and it could be uh, medical negligence, it could be just a, you know, a, a bad, an accident bad day happens. of surgery, it could be an, an accident, yeah. or it could have been deliberate. And uh, suspi- as suspicions grow, and eventually, like about halfway through the movie, somebody just sort of screams out, "This person was murdered!" That's when our, our charismatic detective is called in, and we get to have a, a really wonderful investigation. Yeah. Uh, the detective. Uh, let me look up the detective's name. Uh, the character uh, you mean? The character. Oh, uh, okay. Because he's played by Alistair. Sim. Alistair. Sim. Inspector. In- Inspector Cockrell. Yeah. Inspector Cockrell is played by Alistair Sim, who you probably know from maybe the best film version of A Christmas Carol. Uh, certainly um, one of the most famous versions of A Christmas. Yeah. Carol, um, Alistair Sim was a big name. He gets like a big, he gets his own title card. He's treated mm. like a big, big deal in the movie. But yeah, the first act, he's not in it. The first act. So this movie is set during World War II in Britain during the Blitz, and every night and sometimes during the day, planes would fly overhead and drop bombs on people or strafe people. And so half the time when people are outside doing things like, oh, gotta walk to the crime scene. Mm. Oh, shit! And he's gotta, like, <laughs> jump under things or whatever, and then... Jerry sure has given us what for today. And then, what, what? Uh, and then it turns out it was nothing, and our hero just has mm. to brush himself off and go off like, mm. oh, nothing happened. Um, there's this, there's this um, stiff upper lip quality. Yeah, I was about to, to say, a lot it's, of, it's very British. It's very British, but yeah. this the stiff upper lip quality, which is, we're going through one of the most harrowing experiences that will probably ever befall our generation, or maybe generations hence, but we're going to pretend like nothing's happening. <laughs> we're just going to go about our business. <laughs> Everything's going to be really horrible at night, yeah. and then during the day, it's fine. Nobody talk about it. And there's something really, really... The movie understands that that is, in a way, heroic. Mm. And in a way, very silly. <laughs> in a way, just kind of ironic and weird. Mm. And so Green for Danger actually understands that there's an element of humor here. But well, the, the first half is actually pretty nose to the grindstone. It's actually yeah. a, a little bit serious. Because we are dealing with the Blitz. Uh, yeah. This film was made in the 40s. So yeah. it was kind of a fresh memory. Fresh wound, uh, really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it takes place in a hospital. And it's a bunch of surgeons and uh, their nurses. And... They perform surgeries, they uh, uh, try to rescue people who have been injured in regular old ways, but also uh, in the bombings, and um, we meet people who are in love, people who are falling out of love, and who might be starting to date that other doctor, (laughs) so now this doctor hates that doctor, and that nurse hates that guy, and it's kind of soap operatic, but in a very... Because of the context, because of this life-or-death situation that they're all in like every single day... It doesn't feel farcical and it doesn't feel trivial. It feels like 
every decision we make could be our last, so we're going to take it really, really seriously. So when people kiss each other, it doesn't feel like, oh, I just couldn't resist your charms. It's just like, this is all I've ever wanted in my life. Like, it's so, (laughs) like, it's really intense. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they they go into surgery one night, uh, someone dies, and uh, the next day, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, the chairperson or the uh, the administrator of the hospital uh, is like, well, there's going to have to be an inquest. It's bad. And uh, didn't you uh, lose someone else on an operating table a while ago? I don't see how that's relevant. Weren't the circumstances really similar to this? I don't see how that's relevant. You don't. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it, it leads to this big party where uh, the administrator wants to... His big thing is keeping morale up. Mm-hmm. Like, I know people so will they, die, but keep big, morale up, damn they it. A, they have a big dance, which it feels like he's trying to get an orgy started. <laughs> like, it, 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 there's something not quite on the up and up about this dance. Yeah, it, it, there, well, it reeks of trying too hard. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, again, I think that's the sort of thing where when Alistair Sim comes along and he's a funny character walking into a serious situation, and that's one of the things I love about the movie. Mm. Um, He brings in a sense of humor, but it was always kind of there because everyone's in a little bit Mm. of denial, or at least they're trying uh, to fight it off. And of course, he enters the movie right at the right moment because actually something very serious has happened. Somebody has died on the table, and at this party that's practically an orgy, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the attending nurses... Uh, shouts out like from from a balcony over the crowd, saying, "He, it wasn't an accident. He was murdered. He murdered, I tell you." And, and I like, can and, prove it. Yeah, and, and she uh, runs away really dramatically, and everyone's like, and, "Oh shit!" And wouldn't you know it? She is immediately killed. Yeah, she she's running around. Everyone starts running after her, and you don't know if it's because she was in the middle of a love triangle, so that's reason for people to run around with her as well. Maybe they're chasing after her, and then she enters at the operating theater and there's someone there in like completely covered in scrubs and then she's stabbed to death (laughs) and it's off camera obviously but it's still horrible Mm. and she's there's no denying this one this one's a murder so they call in alistair sim and alistair sim He's got a he's got a kind of a Poirot quality. It must yeah. be a Poirot. It's like Poirot v- via well, Monsieur Hulot. He's if, not. If, <laughs> that's an interesting description. Yeah. Well, if you look at if here's the thing though, I feel like there's this idea that the fun slash funny detective, the Columbo kind of detective, uh-huh. who's very unassuming, and you'd be surprised at how smart they are. Feels like it feels like such a modern thing because it feels like it's subverting uh-huh. the seriousness of a genre. Yeah. But Agatha Christie had been playing with that since like she codified the genre. Like, <laughs> yeah, the detective genre predates that. It goes back to at least Poe, but uh, then certainly Sherlock Holmes was a big, big deal. But when Agatha Christie was writing, uh, she had funny detectives. Miss Marple is hilarious. Yeah, it, like well, Poirot I think a lot of hilarious. They're funny people. Mystery writers understood that in order to be a detective, and may, maybe not Sherlock Holmes, but in order to be a detective, you kind of have to have a little bit of oddness. And Sherlock Holmes was odd, but he was a very serious character. Yeah, he's very um, severe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, but I like, feel like Agatha Christie understood that in order to have that kind of mind to really unlock these mysteries and uncover these details, you would need to be a little bit of a weirdo. You'd need to be a funny character. Well, I think I think and what it I, is I think is, the makers of Green for Danger understand that facet of the murder mystery. I think I think what it is is it, it stems from curiosity. 
I am curious about people. And as a result, that leads me to ask questions. And that leads me to annoy people. And I'm just going to lean into that because that's part of my style. So Alistair Sim shows him, and he's very proper, very funny, very, very sweet. Mm. Uh, but he will just randomly say things just to see what people's reaction is. And then he'll move along from there. You know, and it mm. just, he'll like say something that totally means this person did it. And then it's like, I didn't do it. I was doing all of these things. Well, no one ever said you did. But at least now I know you did those things. <laughs> and it's just... And, and he'll say it that way, too. Yeah, he's yeah. just... He's so... He's he's chipper yet smug. Mm. And there's something really, really delightful about that. And by the time he pops into the narrative, yeah, we're, we're into it. Like, it's serious drama, serious melodrama. The cast is really, really good. The sense of claustrophobia in the space is... Uh, really palpable, and mm-hmm. so when he well, comes in, he's a breath of fresh air. It's like you just—it's uh, like um, you know, like in Predator, how <laughs> I mean this. It's always back to Predator with you. But like the first third of Predator is just an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie. Mm. It's like any Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie. It's got a bigger cast, but that's yeah. it. And then all of a sudden, an alien shows up and just throws this familiar territory into chaos. Mm. That's what happens in Green for Danger. We're in a serious medical drama. Someone dies. And then a funny character from another movie pops in and throws the entire thing into chaos because everyone, no one knows how to deal with this guy. (laughs) And that's delightful. It's absolutely charming. This movie was directed by Sidney Gilliatt. I hope I pronounced that right. It might be Gilliatt. But... uh, they're probably, I mean, they did a lot of writing. They're mostly, uh, they're mostly known as a writer. They have way more writing credits than directing credits. Um, but Sidney Killiot did uh, The Lady Vanishes, which is one of Hitchcock's oh, yeah, yeah. sprightliest films. Mm. He also did Jamaica Inn. Um, the Lady Vanishes is funny. <laughs> it's really funny. Very suspenseful, too, and it's actually surprisingly smart and thoughtful about the war situation in Europe. Uh, in a sort of an unexpected way, but he under—he's got a really canny understanding of how to keep threat and suspense alive without losing your sense of humor, and in fact, using those two things to amplify each other. Hmm. And sort of because we're laughing, it's all the more shocking when something violent happens, yeah, and vice versa. That I think is the great strength of Green for Danger. Um, I'd heard of this movie for so goddamn long. It was a movie that was available on Laserdisc and then out of print for many, 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 many years until Criterion picked up the rights again. Mm. Put, um, put on rather nice Blu-ray. And it's really quite nice. Um, and it looks really, really nice on the streaming service as well. And uh, what a delight to see that this movie feels so fresh and modern. Like, if you watched Knives Out, I would be very shocked if Ryan Johnson hadn't seen this film. Oh, God. No, he's definitely he's, seen it's, it. Because yeah. he's, he's very thorough in well, his research, and this is absolutely Daniel Craig's character stems from this, the general vibe of the way that he sort of... It, uh, it might not be specifically this film, because there are actually a lot of murder mysteries yeah. of this type. And you know, by yeah. the time we got to Knives Out, it was a very codified tradition. So it's drawing, sure. but it's definitely this is part of that tradition, a very mm-hmm. strong part of it. Um, My point is, is that it would make a great double feature. And if you liked Knives Out, you should see Green for Danger. We are not ruining the ending of Green for Danger. With oh goodness, you. no! Normally, we could take you all the way through the ending of a movie because you know but, you know but how it's a rom com is. Yeah, we're not going to do it. And it's, not, and it's a relatively obscure murder it, yeah. mystery too. Like 
I mean, yeah, it's you may have heard of it, and it's on Criterion, and I'm you should not, check it out. But like, it's not like everybody knows who did this one. Yeah, I'm I'm, so. I'm not a like Murder on the Orient Express or something. I'm, and even that one, I think it's rude to give away because it's such a good ending. You know, right. like. Murder right. in the Orient Express, I think, still think, has the best ending of any murder mystery I've ever seen. <laughs> I think it's and both, that. And both versions are quite good. But uh, they are, actually. I, I haven't mm-hmm. seen the TV movie version, but... Yeah, um, the Sidney Lumet film from the 70s is, with Albert Finney is really, really great. It's practically perfect. And, it's so damn good. And Kenneth Branagh knew exactly what he was doing then. I think yeah, he did it really well, too. He, he's making the more Hollywood version of it, but it's a good Hollywood version yeah, of it. Yeah. And I like it a lot. And I, I liked his version of Poirot, who had two mustaches on his face <laughs> that met in the middle. It was really bizarre. <laughs> Are. That's how they describe it in the book, so it's actually like very appropriate. It's hilarious. Uh, but uh, Green for Danger, I really enjoyed it. It's really light. I liked the conclusion. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of lo-fi. Mm-hmm. It feels it's, like a B movie that's it, so well made it became an A movie. Well, that's the thing. It's it's being treated like an A movie, but it still feels like it never should have been an A movie. Yeah. It feels like this thing kind of escaped into prestige when really it should stay on. It's kind of a mid-level flick. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's mid-level it's gr- though. No, it's, it's, it's it's great. I'm not going to say it's not great. Here, here's, but here's 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 maybe there's, there's, there's you know you look at something like you know yeah. Jules Dessin's Rafifi and you know how it really kind of okay, broke yeah. new ground in a lot of ways and told a crime story in a new sort of way. This just does something very typical very well. And I, I feel like just by dint of when it came out, mm-hmm. that is, it's a film about the Blitz only a few years after the Blitz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is the thing that kind of makes it notable that they well, told and this also kind of Alistair Sim and Alistair Sim. And I think, but the, movie they, was, took, I think they, the book was popular. It's too. a largely very light movie, mm-hmm. very very wispy movie. It kind of yeah. just blows away. Uh, that it sort of came out of this kind of heady time is maybe the most remarkable thing about it. Well, let me ask you this question, because there's a there's a school of critical thought mm. I have been embracing, and it's I, I'm not going to say it's mine, but mm. it's certainly something that I've been pushing more than other people that I know. Um, I call it the four-star, three-star movie. Yeah. Uh, which is some movies are only designed to be so good. Mm. They're never going to reach the heights of 2001 A Space Odyssey because that was never their ambition. Mm. However, they can be as good as they can possibly be and therefore achieve greatness even though they are not capital G great. Mm. Something like Green for Danger might be a good example of that. It's a movie that is light, frothy, uh, you know, touches upon serious topics, but is actually just a sharply written, witty, fun, standalone murder mystery with really, really great characters. Uh, is this perhaps to you a four star, three star movie? Uh, that's that's a good way. It's a fine way to put it. Yeah, like it's it's not th- it's, ca- it's saying a re- really good three star movie. Yeah, <laughs> saying it's no the best years of our lives is not an insult. Right. Saying it is like a really, 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 really good murder mystery that you will have a lot of fun mm-hmm. watching and maybe you'll be surprised by the ending no, uh, I, is the, is enough. Yeah, the reason I bring that up is because it is on the Criterion channel. And mm-hmm. the Criterion channel has, for the most part, been incredibly well curated. They are mm-hmm. very careful about what they add to the collection and uh, you know the, the sorts of films they feel like need to be vaunted. Yeah. Even if they're silly films like the Godzilla box set. It's like, okay... <laughs> 
the, they the have cultural me- significance. Yeah, Mo- Mecha Godzilla is important on a, on a certain level. Sometimes um, it's interesting to to look at Criterion movies and say that some movies are on Criterion because they're legitimately the best films ever made. Mm. You know, the works of Akira Kurosawa, or, or, or they're they're at least notable in some, or they're they're really important films. Yeah, or, or I also like that they found a bunch of films that are maybe not as good, but are made by notable filmmakers yeah. who come from a notable studio, and they release those under their aptly named Eclipse series. Things yeah. that are typically eclipsed by greater things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really good example. But there are films that are on the Criterion Collection, either in their streaming service or in their home video releases, uh, especially once Criterion started in Laserdisc, and in Laserdisc, they didn't exclusively put out these vaunted classic films. They also released a lot of studio product because a lot of studios weren't putting a lot of effort and energy into their laser discs and so Criterion was able to license a lot of really mainstream titles. Yeah. Um some of which have eventually been released on DVD or Blu-ray as well, but when they became a DVD and Blu-ray distributor, they decided to focus really hard on only releasing movies Prestige that are pictures. Well, yeah. they're just important. If you love movies, you should see them. So some people giggle at some of the early releases like The Rock and the Armageddon Rock, yeah. because they seem to stand out. Two counter-arguments with that. Uh, one, those probably sold so well that something like Green for Danger can get made now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if, two, if, if it helped them get on their feet, then I'm all, all for it. And, and two, I do think it's fair to say that those blockbusters are very indicative of the time period in which they were made. Michael Bay is very much a blockbuster auteur mm-hmm. in that, you again, every time you see a Michael Bay movie, it's, it's distinctly a Michael Bay movie. A Michael yeah. Bay movie. Uh, his works are worth studying. And I think those two are probably the best two examples of that. So I'm going to fight for that. But sometimes they put movies out that their significance is a little harder to nail down. Mm. Or maybe it's only from a certain perspective. For example, they released a film called Equinox. (laughs) Equinox is both a wonderful movie and kind of a crappy movie. It is an independent movie uh, made by a bunch of uh, novice visual effects artists who basically ran out into Griffith Park or some other, you know, Topanga Canyon. Yeah, Topanga Canyon, just some generic wooded area. And they told a story about a bunch of students who were looking for their professor's house or something like that. And they are besieged by stop motion monsters. The stop motion monsters are pretty uncanny, especially for the budget that they had. Yeah. And when the movie was released, the movie was very inspirational to people like Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson, who, oh, I could do that. Mm. I have no money. I don't live in Hollywood, but I can get a camera and I can make a horror movie out in the woods. And I So the movie is inspirational. The movie inspired a lot of people. A lot of the visual effects artists in those movies went on to bigger and better things in the visual effects industry. The movie itself, it's not a good film. <laughs> like, the story sucks. Mm. The acting sucks. There's two different versions on it. One's slightly better as a story than the other, but they're not good stories. They're impressive proto-works that fit into the chronology of cinema in an interesting way, and you can learn a lot from watching it. Yeah. I also recently watched the film Ride the Pink Horse, which, by the way, weird title. <laughs> it sounds like sex slang, of course. It does. Yeah. Ride the Pink Horse is a uh, uh, film noir directed by Robert Montgomery, 
uh, about a, um, a a criminal who got like screwed over by some guys and is in Mexico to get his money back. It plays like an early proto version of Point Blank, except frankly, I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> like I I actually think it's kind of a crap movie. Like I can see how it was influential in a few different ways, but I don't think it held up very well. But it has an interesting place in history. Uh, uh, Thomas Gomez was a supporting role in the film. Uh, was the first Latino to ever get an Oscar nomination. Oh, nice. Okay. So it has a good place in history, even though the movie itself, he's really good in it. The movie itself, it's okay. I don't think Robert Montgomery's that good a director, honestly. <sighs> I, I don't know if that's sacrilege or not. I don't know if he has like a, a lot of fans, but personally, I don't think he's that great. But it's there for a reason, mm. and sometimes figuring out that reason is reason enough to watch a Criterion mm. movie. So every once in a while you see a Criterion movie that doesn't strike you as an all-timer, but it's there for a reason. Mm. Green for Danger is here for you know historical significance, uh, for, you know the time period, the way that it tackled the subject matter. Mm. It's also here because it's really good. It's really wonderful, and I really hope you check it out. And uh, if you have a Criterion Channel subscription... No reason not to check it out. If you mm. don't, there's a free trial period, I believe. Definitely worth scoping out. But that whole service is really, really great. Um, any last thoughts on Green for Danger? Uh, no, I've said my piece. All right, I, I, I recommend <laughs> it. I think it's very light and fun and, and very, a very enjoyable film. All right, Luca's trying to. Uh, uh, I think he's trying to kill some bugs. Go get him, <laughs> Luca. Um, Anyway, that's critically acclaimed. That is critically acclaimed. We'll be back next week with reviews of more streaming movies. Um, it's actually a little hard to keep track of everything that's premiering on streaming services. A lot of them aren't advertised. Yeah. We have to do a lot of research to yeah. figure out what's even being released. Sometimes we don't even hear about it until the day of its release. Yeah, so it's, it happens. It, if there's anything, it takes us a couple of days just to catch up on things that we didn't yeah. know existed. Our, until our a weekends days are very ago. full right now because we mm. just had, and also because there really aren't like a lot of press screenings for these movies now. We don't have time mm. to do it like before they come out. So our weekends are jam packed full of watching these things. I will say this right now: if there's anything that's premiering on a streaming service, be it, you know, Netflix, Hulu, Criterion Channel, Shutter, HBO Max when that comes out, whatever. If there's any new feature films that you really want us to cover, feel free to tweet us. Yeah, we would certainly yeah. be interested to know, like, especially, I mean, we probably know about it because we're trying to stay on top of these things, but we might not. And if it's a new release and something you really want us to cover, we will certainly take it under advisement whether or not we can actually fit it into our schedules may be another matter. But yeah. feel free to tweet us at Critic Acclaim. Uh, or uh, you can also tweet us uh, if you're going to tweet us a recommendation tweet it to both of us I'm at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibel uh, and uh, yeah we also have a Facebook page you can totally leave uh, questions recommendations there you can also go to our Patreon page patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network got a lot of cool stuff happening over there uh, we have a ton of exclusive content we got a podcast about Firefly we got a podcast about Star Trek we got a podcast about every film ever nominated for Best Picture uh, we got commentary tracks we've got films that are supposed to be on Disney Plus but are not bullshit we got all kinds of stuff over there um, we've also got uh, a new uh, uh, well it's not a poll really but uh, we're doing the Cancel Too Soon Awards uh, later this week uh, where we talk about the best and worst and weirdest uh, failed TV shows that we've covered on our podcast, Cancel Too Soon, here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, and if you vote for your three favorite episodes of that podcast on our Patreon page, and there's a page that's set up whether or not you're a patron, uh, you can win a chance to force us to review any show you want on Cancel Too Soon. 
So we hope you check it out. Um, and especially, we just want to give a huge thank you to everyone who is a patron. We couldn't and wouldn't do this without you. You're really, really you're, important. You're making everything, making all the ends meet these days. Yeah. It's the, really helpful. So. The, the rent is getting paid, and it's mostly because of you. So thank you so much. So we hope we're giving you the, the content that you desire, the content that you like. Yeah. And we're going to keep on throwing it at you. So thank you so, so much, everybody who contributes. If you can't afford to contribute, we totally get it. Uh, but if you want to help out the show, leave us a review wherever you find the, the show, Apple Podcasts or wherever. Uh, and if maybe if someone's asking for recommendations on Twitter or wherever, tell them we exist. That would be nice. Who knows? <laughs> maybe it'll be good. I don't know. It's late and I'm tired. Let's just move on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.